0: This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck.
1: Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's
0: all about money, boys! Here we go again.
1: Mr. Scamander, do you know anything about the wizarding community in America?
0: I like that you got that kind of slightly old American accent. Just a little bit, just just
1: the hair, you know, not, not overdone.
0: Well done, mate. Hey guys and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host Gabe Green and as always I'm here with Ryan Wall. Welcome dude. Hi. Also James is here. But uh, so today we're talking about Fantastic Beasts. Hi James.
1: Hey how's it going? Glad to be here. Um,
0: <laughs> so today we are starting on the um the spin-off series of the Harry Potter, you know, the Harry Potter Wizarding I guess Wizarding World is the kind
2: of title. That's now. the word they, The world. The, the term they have settled on
0: It's the, the the Wizarding World series, the spinoff Fantastic Beasts series with Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, before we get into that, I want to ask you guys if you enjoy, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment uh, to head over to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a five star rating and review, and we will be very much appreciative. And if it feels like I'm rushing through this, I am. I have had the worst weekend. Uh, just a really nasty. Fever slash throat cold. Like so bad, I thought it was COVID. Got tested. It wasn't. I kind of wish it was so I could have it over with. Like, if I'm going to suffer, let it be that. Uh, but I'm, I'm better now. But my, I'm worried that my throat is going to give out and voice is just going to crack at some point. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to try and <laughs> edit out all the coughing. But if a cough or two sneaks in, I apologize. Also, I'd like us on Facebook to keep up to date with all the latest episodes and I give feedback that can end up on the show. And speaking of said feedback, I asked on Facebook and Twitter what our listeners thought about this film. Former guest Josh Mesker said, I like it a lot.
1: Mickey said, I thought it was really fun and enjoyed most of all the relationship between Newt and Jacob. I would, would have liked to see the beasts themselves featured more centrally in the plot, but I felt for the most part that Newt was still the main character. Can't say the same for the second one, unfortunately.
0: Getting the uh, crimes of Grindelwald slander in early. I see. <laughs> All right. Uh, on Twitter, uh, Chad Hopkins, uh, another former guest uh, at Chad said, uh, I don't know if love is the right word, but I like this one a lot. It's wonderful. Having new Ken storytelling. That's not adapted from anything else. The Obscurus is fascinating to explore and I like Eddie Redmayne a lot, as uh, as Newt a lot. I agree with all of that.
1: Compellingly odd, at J X Shram said the slow change of Colin Farrell to Johnny Depp caused such a memorable and visible tremor throughout my screening of just, ugh. <laughs> uh, uh, actually a Depp fan, but when you have Colin Farrell as Grindelwald, you keep him as Grindelwald.
0: I distinctly remember that reaction to myself as well. However, having seen Crimes of Grindelwald, I can't agree anymore. Um. But, I mean, I would not have been mad if they kept Colin Farrell either. I mean, it's, it's a win-win. Yeah. But, I mean, now, <laughs> now we have another actor. Just, this is so freaking weird. All right, so moving into the behind-the-scenes story of this film. So the original book, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, was published by J.K. Rowling on December 1st of 2001. I didn't realize it was that old. I thought it was something that like, came after the books. Um, Wait, what? Which would have... Yeah, it was published between uh, Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix books, and only a few weeks after the release of Sorcerer's Stone, the film.
1: I didn't realize it was an actual thing, like a book that you could read.
0: Oh yeah, so it, it was written as if it were the uh, Care of Magical Creatures textbook that Harry bought you know, in his first year in uh, Diagon Alley. Um, essentially like an encyclopedia of magical creatures in the Wizarding World, um, written by uh, Newt Scamander. Uh, but it, it, it also, it has Rowling's kind of wit and quirkiness. I remember it being a very fun read. Nice. I read it back when I first read the series. It's just a it's a, just a little kind of small book, fun. Um, but also cool, uh, most of the profits from the book I went re- re- directly to the charity uh, Comic Relief, which uh, helps kids in poverty. Uh, Rowling definitely seems to be very active in a lot of uh, ph- uh, philanthropic. That's how you pronounce it, right? <laughs>
1: yes, I believe so, at least.
0: So as far as the adaptation uh in September of 2013 just a little over 2000 uh 2 years after the release of Deathly Hells Part 2 uh Warner Brothers announced that they would be partnering with Rowling uh, to produce a series of films based on the book. Um and uh, J.K. Rowling would actually be writing them at this time making her a uh, screenwriting debut. Mm-hmm. David Heyman and Heyday Films uh who produced the entire Harry Potter series um would also be returning to produce the films. And uh Steve Clovis was attached to the film to the film as a producer. Um, it's a little unclear as to exactly the level of involvement he had listening to um interviews with Yates and Heyman. Uh they make it sound like he was just an uh, he was pretty much a co-writer. Like they worked with him for like over a year with you know him rolling and Yates together trying to crack the story. Um, but he wasn't credited as a screenwriter. And I remember like a year ago. They made a big announcement that we're getting Steve Clovis back to write uh, what is now known as uh, *Secrets of Dumbledore*. But he was already involved in the writing, so it's, I'm not entirely sure. Like the the arbitration process from the Screenwriting Guild, as far as who gets credited uh, for their work, is like notorious for not crediting people. Like you, you people often you'll have like all kinds of people coming in and doing various rewrites often someone like rewriting while filming and, and usually they won't even get credited. So it, it who, who was credited uh, has more to do often with kind of who came first, as opposed to who actually did, you know, the lion's share of the work S- sometimes, not always all that said, like the original draft was written by Rowling, and then they, ref- they worked together to refine it, which is probably why she gets sole credit. But then, you get, but then again, you get things like rogue one or justice league, you have a, a writer who only wrote reshoots, who also gets a, a co-writing credit, so who knows how it works. Yeah, so according to Yates, um, a producer, uh Warner Brothers producer Lionel Wigram was the one who initially uh got the idea to adapt something from Fantastic Beasts. Um Hollywood obviously being constantly on the lookout for new IP. Uh but according to Rowling, she had already been kind of considering writing a story about Newt Scamander. Um, so they got together and decided to make the film about Newt rather than about the book itself. And she obviously used um, used this story to kind of explore aspects of the Wizarding World and their history that she had hinted at uh, in passing in the Harry Potter series. As far as director, um, there were major rumors that Alfonso would be was uh, being courted to direct the film. Uh, but he shot down the rumors saying that um, while he enjoyed his time on Prisoner of Azkaban and really loved the series... Uh, he had just spent five years making Gravity, which was uh, coincidentally produced by David Heyman, uh, and he didn't want to do anything with visual effects for a while. Uh, then, in the fall of 2014, um, it was announced that David Yates would be returning to direct this film. Uh, in between this and Deathly Hallows, he had directed the pilot for a TV show called Tyrant, uh, and at that moment would have been deep in filming on The Legend of Tarzan. Yeah, and just before the film's release, it was announced that the series would have five uh, installments instead of the uh, the initial initially uh, proposed trilogy, and that Yates would be directing at least the next one and possibly all of them.
1: Is that a path that they're still on?
0: Uh, I, I really don't know because like after the crimes of Grindelwald, there seemed to be serious question as like I think they completely rethought the, what they were doing from the ground up because there was a there was a long time when there was no news. And you, people are like, legit wondering, are they even going to continue because that movie made less? And obviously the reception wasn't great. So I, I don't know. I would not be surprised if they re, they're restructuring it to maybe cut out a film or, so, or something.
1: It will be interesting to see. Yeah. And For the film's cast, this is, this is almost new to me. It feels like uh, cast for the last several weeks has just been like new additions here and there just because we have such a huge recurring cast. But uh, we get to start from uh, scratch this time. So for the character of Newt's commander, our protagonist, uh, the role ended up going to Eddie Redmayne. But if you look at some of the other people who were considered, uh, really several of these choices would have been fine. Like Matt Smith and Nicholas Holt were both considered mm. for the role, and I think either could have probably done yeah. it pretty well. Uh, I also I really like Nicholas Holt a lot. So Matt
0: Smith has a very similar energy. Yeah, in his Doctor Who.
1: For the character of Porpentina Esther Goldstein, uh, called Tina in the film. Uh, the role went to Catherine Waterston, who was kind of popping up in a lot of things at that time. Uh, Dan Fogler played the role of Jacob Kowalski. For the role of Queenie Goldstein, the role went to Alison Sudol, although this this is a far less, oh, that makes sense, uh, casting decision. <laughs> um, and Or at least for for people who they were considering. Um, actresses considered for the role were Michelle Rodriguez. Uh... Carolyn Murphy.
0: I don't understand that (laughs) on any level.
1: That would have been a fundamentally different character. Heather Matarazzo, uh, which also would have been a much different character. Uh, I feel like she's mostly known as the best friend from the Princess Diaries movies. And again, all of these are kind of weird. Uh, Lindsay Sterling, the violinist, like the pop violinist is considered, um, so,
0: it's interesting, because Soudal um, uh, is also a musician. I wonder if there was some kind of quality they were looking for.
1: Just a little bit of musicality to the role. Um, the role of Mary Lou Barebone, it went to Samantha Morton, uh, Ezra Miller playing her son Credence, uh, John Voight plays Henry Shaw Sr. for some reason, <laughs> Carmen Jogo as Serafina Pickery, the president of the Makusa, which, <laughs> weird name.
2: Uh, She's Macusa, got an awesome name, though.
1: Yes, she has an awesome name, but <laughs> I can't say the Makusa with a straight face. <laughs> um, Colin Farrell plays who we would think was Percival Graves, um, obviously, a later reveal with that character. Ron Perlman uh, does the voice for the Goblin Narlac. Faith Wood Blagrove plays uh, Modesty Barebone. Ronan Raftery uh, and Josh Cow- uh, Cowdery play both of Shaw's sons, Langdon Shaw and Henry Shaw Jr. Kevin Guthrie plays Abernathy, Jen Murray uh, plays Chastity Barebone, Gemma Chan, who's now leading the Eternals, uh, played Madame Yajou, and then Johnny Depp as Gellert Grindelwald. Uh, Zoe Kravitz, uh, <laughs> pictured as Leta Lestrange, or is it Lestrange?
0: Uh, probably depends what side of the, uh, you know, the channel you want, you're on.
1: Oh, that's true. Um, and then uh, finally, Johnny Depp as Gellert Grindelwald. Uh, and so I found a quote from Haven where he's talking about, you know, why Johnny Depp for the role. And the quote is, t- to me, it's kind of unintentionally funny considering, you know, just the reaction it got. Where he said, uh, he said it was at the end of last year. Uh, we filmed it uh, referring to the casting and shooting of that scene with Depp. So we filmed it early this year because of availability. What we wanted was an iconic actor to play Grindelwald because Grindelwald is an iconic character who has a significant place in the story. His ability to persuade the hearts and minds, to persuade people to follow him is essential to the story. He is dangerous in that way. We were looking for someone who is seductive and could be charming and could be original, who is iconic, who is a great actor. And that's what Johnny Depp is. He can be irresistible. He's powerful. He's created some iconic characters and not made the obvious choices when doing so. The unpredictability of the choices he makes is part of what makes him so extraordinary. And that was exciting for us. He was the perfect choice for Grindelwald.
0: All of which is true, but just not in the winter of 2016. <laughs>
1: not in the winter. And like, definitely.
0: or for the few years after that.
1: Yeah. And you know, the few years before where the, the comment that to me did, did feels like, oh man, that's, this is not necessarily where he's at or certainly not how he's perceived was this idea of, Johnny Depp just making a series of bold <laughs> and unpredictable acting choices where you know the joke at the time was just he was he was in all of Tim Burton's movies and he's just playing a very like variations on Jack Sparrow and stuff so I don't know whenever you know I didn't see this movie up until we were recording but I knew he was in it and I had seen what he looked like and my thought was oh you know another <laughs> odd looking Johnny Depp character you know he'll that character de- design looks like he just walked out of a Tim Burton movie. And so I was like, hmm, I guess that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Murder on the Orient Express was kind of pivotal in winning me back to Johnny Depp leading into crimes of Grindelwald. Oh, so good in that. So as far as filming, um, so as if uh, directing a uh, deathly house part one and two simultaneously hadn't been enough of a challenge, uh, Yates had to juggle the productions of Tarzan and fantastic beasts at the same time. Tarzan was shot first, which gave them, as best I can tell, about three months before he had to film Fantastic Beasts, and then the films came out within six months of each other. Um, however, he, he was experienced with working like this on Harry Potter, where we on that series the post-production and pre-production of each of the immediate sequels was pretty all, pretty much always overlapped. But here, he would have had to be doing post-production on one film while filming the other one. Uh, it probably simplified things a little bit that both were Warner Brothers co-productions uh, and both were filmed on the Leavesden studios. But still, that's just, what are you doing to yourself, man? Take a break. Jeez.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, so as I said, as with the Harry Potter films, as I said, they were all shot at the, uh, the Leavesden film studios in England. Uh, location shooting was done in Liverpool, uh, which stood in for for uh, 1920s New York city. They didn't actually film at all in New York, in New York city. They, uh, essentially recreated a couple blocks in Liverpool. Uh, I think that, that aspect looks pretty good. French cinematographer uh, Philippe Rousselot uh, shot the film. Uh, he's worked with guys like John Borman, Neil, Neil Jordan, and Tim Burton. A couple of recent uh, big films he's done would be uh, Guy Ritchie's uh, Sherlock Holmes films, great-looking movies, mm-hmm. uh, and The Nice Guys. Hmm, nice. And funnily enough, he shot uh, one of Steve Clovis's films uh, back in the 90s that he directed. For the production design, uh, the wonderful Craig Stewart, uh, who served as production designer on all eight Harry Potter films, returned to design the world for Fantastic Beasts. And also, someone who should be mentioned: uh, legendary costume designer Colleen Atwood did the wardrobe for this film. Um, and oh my gosh, boy does she! Um, like every single costume here is just perfection. Um, like, ev- like Newt, Tina, and um, I love the way uh, Graves works. in particular. Like they each have this really distinct, almost instantly iconic look. Like it's it's, it's like all in the, the the overcoat scarf combo each one has. It just fits the character to a T, and I, it it actually gets even better in the second one.
1: For the film score, uh, the music was composed uh, by James Newton Howard. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, and he talked a lot about. There there are various interviews. Uh, I didn't pull any quotes, but there are different interesting interviews. With him, where he's kind of talking about, you know, the the line you have to walk between sounding familiar but creating your own new theme. And what's what's funny is basically the only composer who's ever really brought up in any of these interviews, uh, despite only having composed the first three, is John Williams. And they're like so many of the questions are about, you know, what's it like coming on board? It's always about it's like, how do you follow up John Williams? It's <laughs> like. <laughs> They, nobody ever talks about any of the other composers who had worked from, you know, films four through eight. But, um, but also the, the one interesting tidbit is it, it sounds like, um, he was wanting to almost do exclusively new music. And there was a little bit of pressure from Warner bros to be like, we have to, the, the opening notes have to be for a certain amount of time, Hedwig's theme, and then you can transition into something. And there was,
0: which I, I like that choice.
1: Yeah, I do too. And so, but he, he was talking about how he was, weirdly enough, some of the, some of the most difficult parts of, of the whole the experience of scoring it was trying to figure out the tone of, like, you know, just we've heard so many variations of Hedwig's themes. So it's like, what do we go with? What, what do we want the tone for that to be? How do we transition into new music? And um, I think what they did actually works really well. Uh, so I think he nailed it.
0: One of the quotes he said, he described the transition from Hedwig's theme into his own Fantastic Beast theme. He said it was the uh, the longest 30 seconds of his life.
1: Yeah. For the film's release, it had its world premiere at Alice Tully Hall in New York City on November 10th, 2016, and then had its wide release eight days later on the 18th.
0: All right. So moving into our main review, uh, we'll go with Ryan first. Uh, what's your history with this film and have your thoughts on it evol- evolved at all since uh,
2: 2016? Okay. So um... – I'm happy that you know this being my fourth time with you guys talking about Harry Potter, third in this stretch, but I did the initial Kranz Grindelwald reaction with you, Gabe, yeah. um, but uh, I'm happy I don't have to go through the full thing, but with this film, I was already a well-read Harry Potter fan going in, seeing all the movies, I was here opening night, and I walked away ambivalent and a little confused, and yeah, I think repeated viewings helped bolster my opinion of this movie. Um, it is an incredibly dense film. I think it's uh, from the mind of a novelist trying to be a screenwriter. And, uh, you know, that that has its own uh, pitfalls that make it so that it's not fully digestible, I think, in one viewing. So I think uh, your your view kind of has to transform a little bit based on. Repeated viewings, or uh, even just marinating it in it over time. And and it also has a unique problem that other films uh, in the Harry Potter series did not have, which is that this film heavily requires knowledge of the book because there's so much explored Mm. here that is either left out or extremely trimmed down. In the films and it's that is interesting. it's like um, it's also like Rowling was explicit that this was kind of a multimedia enterprise so you had a lot of content on Pottermore spilled over this you had um, which I have not engaged with at all I've engaged with a lot of it it was a while back so my memory on it is not perfect but I should be able to help with that a little bit and I did find though that engaging with that Multimedia experience did enhance this. I, the best correlation I can make to this would be something like Star Wars, where there is films. Of course, they're the they're, they're the bedrock, but then there's television shows, and then there's uh, comics, and there's games, and you know. So that's the best analog I can find for this. Uh, except, I think this is considered canon to the novel universe in a way that the films are not. It's it's a weird mismatch of things james you this is your first time watching this movie what did you think
1: um i don't know okay so we'll say i genuinely went in like pretty hyped for this um
0: and he's breaking up uh, so i guess we have, to, we have to go with adam ryan yeah. okay so too bad just
1: to the thing is there was a lot of teasing because you were wanting me to try to get into viewings before uh, but I'm very jealous uh, and precious with my my movie time. Um, and so I, I watched it just the once for the podcast, but I'm I'm ready to rewatch it. And I think a rewatch would be uh, better helped by, you know, a conversation with the both of you. Uh, I think having this in between my viewings would help. But all that to say, you know, I I left the Harry Potter series really enjoying it. like this. Is, I, I mean, I love the series. Um, and I really love David Yates. So, and I know both of y'all like really love this one. And so it was like, by all accounts, uh, I'm going to love this. Like there's, I'll tease Gabe about not giving it to watches all like all day long, but I have no doubts that I'm just going to go in and, and really, really enjoy this as I have all of the David Yates ones before. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I wasn't really into this one. Um, but I'm, open and hopeful to being won over. And like, I I genuinely do want to be won over. And I think that it could happen because like y'all are saying, it's, you know, it's, it's a movie that deserves rewatches, but first time viewing, um, I I wasn't a huge fan.
0: Well, we'll keep you around for a little (laughs) while longer than I guess. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So for my history, you know, at this, at when this film was announced, I was already, you know, a big Harry Potter fan. So went and watched it opening night. Really enjoyed it. Um, I don't not, not didn't necessarily love it, but really enjoyed it. Saw it a couple more times in theaters, and really fell in love primarily with the characters and this this new crew we follow. Um, and then I feel like after in the years after that, it became more and more popular, just like this film. Even leading up to Crimes of Grindelwald, the Crimes of Grindelwald came out, and that became the internet's favorite punching bag for like a year, you know, it took, took the crown from like the last Jedi or whatever. Okay. Um, and so you got, and as someone who li- li- really liked this film and enjoyed that one, you really go into kind of defense mode. And so, um, they've been very much defending these films. Uh, I'm not even going to get into crimes of Grindelwald right now. That's a, that's a whole discussion on its own, but as far as this one, I think it's, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a weird film. Um, is a lot of like quote unquote rules and, and traditions of storytelling that it just kind of doesn't really do it. You know, It does its own thing. There's a, there's a, there's a lot going on. It's very, there's very dense and, <clears throat> and I, I, I definitely see how it could be off putting, you know, to a casual viewing or even someone who wasn't expecting whatever rolling is doing here. Um, but the more I watch it, the more I feel like I kind of find its wavelength and what it's doing and, what is and mostly what, what is trying to say thematically, and on that level, I really love it. And this is kind of this kind of film is one that I really love, like these flawed films that are that kind of baffle you on first viewing, and you gotta like you gotta dig in there to find out like what are, what are you even doing, like what what are you like what are you trying to be, and I find those very rewarding if they're good, like if, if there's actually something to discover like that kind of that whole process of digging into a film and putting time and thought into, it, I find very rewarding. So there's a lot of ways we can start with this conversation. I think it would be good to really kind of dig into, I think some of either flaws or perceived flaws or reasons people might not engage with this film. And that, and I think that starts with JK Rowling as a screenwriter. This is her first screenplay. Um, Steve Clovis had a lot of involvement. We don't know exactly to what level, but from what I was listening to, heyman and uh yates talk it seemed that he was pretty involved for like a year um, but he wasn't credited for some reason but this is still very much rolling story how do we how, how do we think her skills as a storyteller which are pretty indisputable how do we think they translated to a screen to, to screenwriting and the finished film
2: well you know like I, I go to bat for this film a lot as well but i, I i'll be the first to say not as well as you might expect. I think rallying is better in a novel setting where there is plenty of runway to get the plane off the ground and plenty to land. Uh, like 600 pages. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So here though, you know, you have, you know, this isn't a really long movie. Um, I don't remember what the... It's like two hours and 10 minutes, yeah. I think. So it's, it's not like a three hour... Film or anything like that, um, but uh, it it feels like it might have either benefited from that, or you know, like we saw with these eight adaptations of Harry Potter novels, where other creators simply had to make decisions to cut content in order to to service the singular theme of the film and obviously that's not, I mean, obviously things get cut, you know, it's a film, but, um, in this case, it's, it's Rowling's screenplay. So I'm, I'm wondering if it feels a little harder to cut from her, you know, like, um, and there are times where I, I'm actively watching things like the Arumpa in the park where I'm thinking, oh, I think, I think if Yates had been adapting this story; he might not have even done this scene. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's that's the kind of thing that I think I'm I'm picking up on with Fantastic Beasts is that it's a novelist mindset with a film runtime, um, <laughs> and that does create a bit of problems with not only just the a bloat of content but also pacing issues too. Uh, but uh that's just where i land on this
1: yeah it, the the thing is had i watched this not knowing the background i would have thought that this was also an adaptation <laughs> i can all, all of the feelings that i have watching order of the phoenix where it's like oh that's the man they cut that completely or like oh i guess that was their version of teasing that or um like the half-blood prince where it's like and the only reason they kept that in is because it was the top. like that's the you know those little things where you're, you're kind your mind is aware of of the way it's interacting with the source material. Like there were I, there were in a lot of instances where I'm like, this feels like the movie version of like kind of tipping the hat to a subplot. Um, like just seeing the memory of her approaching Ezra Miller's character. And that, I'm like, I bet we would've gotten a chapter, you know? Like I bet like that moment would've been the movie being like, oh yeah, well, there's this whole thing where like we got to go back with her in her flashback and do that. and kind of her backstory, how she interacted Like there was just a lot of things to me that felt like I'm seeing, and oh, I think the biggest one, and this is, this is one of the ones that stick out to me the most uh, is just like the whole, the, the newspaper family, like the father and his two sons. Like, I, I think in general, like the screenplay just feels like messy to me where it's, there's all of these disparate elements of like the, the second Salem the Grindelwald like just kind of saying at the very beginning hey Grindelwald's a thing and then like never bringing him up until the end with the reveal that I mean this where like it really doesn't make sense unless you've seen the Harry Potter but even in the Harry Potter movies Grindelwald isn't like you have to be like oh that's a big deal because of all of the chapters we spend talking about him and Deathly Hallows the book and and so you got those things and then of course like I said the newspaper family and and then like newt is uninvolved in kind of everything up until the very end when he's like oh there's obscure. okay let's i'll go i'll go try to help that feller out but it's like he, he hasn't really been involved in the the story proper it feels like um so just it feels like there's all of these different things that's like well like if i were watching this movie have having read the book and people would be like oh what's wrong with like why this thing didn't make sense i was like well in the book there's this whole thing and the father's actually bought like it you know, you you get the sense that there's a lot behind all of this, only this is an original story, so it, I don't know, it just, it feels really messy to me.
2: And I'll say this, too, with regard to that, James, there, there is a lot behind it, and a lot of it is on Pottermore. Yeah. Um, and,
1: and I have, like, mixed feelings on that, like, I used to be super, super into the the Halo universe, uh, just as as my little analog here, and with the new trilogy we're in right now, the story doesn't make sense if you haven't read the books. And so I find myself in this weird position of people like really insulting the new campaigns. And I'm like, because of the (laughs) information that I have on the books, I'm really enjoying these campaigns, but I can't, I can't pretend that's not an issue with them. And so I take it, it's, it's a very similar thing here where it's like, I'm enjoying it because of information I'm privy to, but that doesn't necessarily excuse the thing itself.
2: We made reference to something very much like that in our discussion of The Force Awakens with The First Order. And I I think that that ties in here as well. You know, that there's some groundwork that's laid elsewhere that definitely benefits the film if you know it, but it hurts the film if you don't. Well coming at this from
0: someone who has not read any of the Pottermore stuff um i, I think if you have a you know decent working knowledge of the of of the just the the Harry Potter films and books I, I think you could follow it pretty well as far as like what, what 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 Grindelwald means and and you say he's absent and but for for me he's everywhere in that he is the reason for just the way the world is, the way it is in this, just how everything within the Wizarding World in New York is on a high alert. It's just this pressure cooker of fear and paranoia and distrust and like borderline fascism. All of that being a result of what um, <clears throat> of the threat Grindelwald poses to the, towards the Wizarding World. That's not really much of an issue for me. I would I, I'd absolutely give you the John, John Voigt being inexplicably in this movie yeah. as a n- newspaper editor and his son's running for for the senate like that's absolutely one of those book you know like the gromp subplot like you cut it you, there's no reason to even acknowledge right. it like you can just have you know uh, Ezra Miller's obscurus just rampaging through any old you know muggle place and you get the exact same result of fear and distrust of wizards like right. so that's really inexplicable I think something like, like an intro giving graves an introduction as, tar- as far as who he is and his place in the world, the wizarding world. Like he just kind of walks on screen and like he's Colin Farrell. He's cool. Okay. We'll go with it. Um, there's a li- there are some things like that, but overall that, that, that doesn't bother me much. Again, this is me having seen it four times, having seen the sequel, really thought about it a lot. Am I filling in just kind of l- links I've made in my own head Probably here and there. Uh, but it really hasn't been a problem for me. I,
1: I guess part of it is it feels like I mean I I love the 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 newspaper like the weird floating between newspaper thing that Yates does, but I feel like it was very much just like it was literally just a series of headlines. You know, it's it's not even really getting into motivations, what he's after, what he's doing. And there's, he's just it was like, hey, Grindelwald, pretty bad guy, am I right? And it, so it wasn't really showing. You know, and I mean, I you, I can't help but make. Yeah,
2: comp- it, it is definitely assuming you've read Deathly yeah, Hallows. Yeah, this front. is you gotta treat this as a sequel to the book. Yeah, unfortunately, and not a sequel to the movie, because Grendelwald's. I'll just lay it out here. Grendelwald knows what an Obscurial is because he has met one before, in the form of Ariana Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. And once you know that and once you know that graves is grendelwald you and i'm gonna vacillate between grendelwald and grendelwald it's the voldemort voldemort (laughs) thing all over again (laughs) but but uh once you know that information about grendelwald his entire subplot in this film makes perfect sense he knows how powerful and devastating this could be he wants it on his side he's trying to find out what it is it's why he's insisting that it's a beast causing the trouble. You know, it's why he's really uh trying to figure out with Credence who the repressed wizard in the orphanage is. And you know, of course he correctly assumes at first that it's Credence. Um and once you know that, all of that makes sense, even even the point of trying to scapegoat Newt and have him executed. And being like, oh, great, he has an Obscurus here, you know. Um, Like, all of that makes a lot of sense of Grindelwald's motivations, but only if you're familiar with the books and you've made the connection with Ariana Dumbledore and Grindelwald.
1: Yeah, I I feel like part of it, though, is that um, he also just largely does, like, you you described the movie, like, there's this sense of, like, it's a pressure cooker and this and that. I think part of it is you know because we spend so much time just out in the regular human world that you don't really it's harder to get a sense of what the wizarding world feels like it feels weirdly really small like we've just this is like the the seat in america like this is the american representation of the wizarding world and it's like aside from the one time you know that they they bring them before everybody else it just feels like it's like the same three people kind of walking around talking to each other
0: yeah it would have made more sense if this was like either the new york mayor or the new york governor
1: yeah Yeah. but it just it just feels really really small to me and so i I, it's hard for me to get a sense of like well it i mean in in the harry potter series you got the sense of like what we don't say his name we're going through all these different pubs and you say it in a pub and everybody freaks like it's just that world feels so much more alive, even just in the first movie. Um, but here, I just—it's I, harder to get a sense, so I don't really feel all of that fear. And and something else that I thought of: there's a, a moment in the the comment. I'm going to bring up a lot of random external sources. Uh, there's a, a a comment that Christopher Lee makes in the Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers commentary where Christopher Lee was talking about, like his friend was talking to him after the premiere of The Two Towers, and he was like, oh, you weren't really in that much, were you? Or like, you weren't in this one as much, were you? And his response to that was, I may not be physically present, but the presence of Saruman looms over every moment. Like that film can't escape the shadow of Saruman. And I feel like they were really able to do that with Voldemort in the the Harry Potter series as well, where it's like, you always kind of get the feeling that he's out there. He's on the edges somewhere. But here, I, I don't know, it feels like we are we are just kind of told, hey, Grinwald's out doing stuff. It's probably pretty bad. Nobody really likes him. And then there's just like this general unease among like the three or four government officials we see. But it doesn't feel like, you know, there's, it, it doesn't feel like there's really a, a one-to-one connection being made there. And then all of a sudden at the end, it's like, in a very weird reveal to me where he's just like, Ravello I'm like, wait, what was the, what? All of a sudden, it's like, it's Johnny Duck, and he's Grindelwald. And then we walk away, and I'm like, ah, you just felt, I don't know, uninvolved in everything. And this is like the Scooby-Doo unmasking moment, but it just, to me, it it means so little in the moment.
2: Well, I think part of it, too, and, and to your credit, more of this gets explored in Crimes of Grindelwald, but when you understand the primary conflict, like Voldemort was all about pure blood supremacy within the magical world and the oppression of muggles. Um, but Grendelwald is a bit different. Um, you know, his mantra is for the greater good, and he believes in wizard supremacy and not only the supremacy, but in one thing that he and Voldemort differ on is. Greneval just wants to do away with the statute statute of secrecy and just lord over them, you know. Um, whereas Voldemort is more like a segregationist, you know. Grenivall is more like a, a directly oppressive to the Muggles, and I'm not saying nomad because I hate that term, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but uh, he's he's not a so much a direct threat to the wizards he's a threat to
0: the whole the entire world order exactly and that's the interesting thing as we see in crimes of Grindelwald, he has immense popular support which which voldemort
2: never had like it's a it is a different dynamic in that regard and once you understand that dynamic you understand that everything about the second salemers is a credit to his viewpoint um everything about the to a lesser extent and and i agree with both of you guys that the john voight trio of you know senator newspaper guy and conspiracy theorist son is like it's it's a bit extraneous but by having those people be in some way a tangential threat if if only to credence um you're bringing the conflict that Grindelwald represents to the fold. So it's not as obvious as Saruman, but everything with the strained muggle to wizard relations in America is exactly what Grindelwald is playing on. Interestingly, the threat isn't so much like, what will Grindelwald do to the
0: wizards? It's it's one like he'll try to rule over the Mugg- muggles, which is immoral. But from a self-preservation standpoint is that he'll awaken the Muggles to our presence and unleash their wrath upon us. You know, break down this wall of secrecy that we've upheld, mainly for our protection. Like, like, sure, the Muggles, we, we're stronger than them on an the individual level, but there are a lot more of them, and, you know, they're pretty good at killing as well. Yeah, they're um, getting machine guns now, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I don't uh, care and and, and,
2: and,
0: and I, I am definitely, I to James's point, I am absolutely importing a lot of... Crimes of Grindelwald knowledge because for me, you know, it's one story; they all flow together. Yeah, and all of this is probably part of the the uh, kind of the way I, you know, really dig into a text and struggle with it, and figure out like what is going on here, you know, through like three or four viewings. So, yeah, not necessarily say you're wrong. No,
2: you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, I think in a way, James is right, but also like it it does, it's easier to track, and and this is to the film's discredit. It's easier to track once you do have crimes of all behind you and you have repeated viewings and it feels more thematically cohesive once you have all of that layered on top. Um, But I, I absolutely agree. Like first time, most of this, I mean, I won't say it flew over my head per se. It just felt really undercooked.
1: And I guess the last thing I'll say about it though, is I'm sure a lot of it will flow and work better. Like with Crimes of Grindelwald being watched, and with the rewatch of this as well. Um, but even so, it still just feels like there's some, like th- this film in particular, without utilizing something, it just, it feels like it's not connecting these things super well enough, and that it's it's just minimizing any sort of physical presence of a wizarding world, where again, it feels like this one department is kind of like, like, Oh boy, we got some stuff on our hands, but it doesn't feel like, Oh no, what's going on. Like, n- and not that, you know, that's the kind of presence and scare that Grindelwald needs. He isn't Voldemort, but it just, again, it just, it feels like it's a small handful of government officials who are kind of, you know, trying to figure out stuff over here. And we just kind of have in the back of our mind, like, Oh yeah, it started off with Grindelwald. I'm sure he's going to show up you know, he's going to have something to do with this. It's um, still, it's just, it doesn't feel.
0: So going to the uh, the other side of the story, as far as like her skills as a screenwriter, you brought up how Newt is very unrelated to the, to the, I guess the main quote unquote main plot for a lot of the film. And that, that was actually something Yates brought up in one of the interviews I was watching. He talked about like when they were crafting, they intentionally, they were, they came at this but they wanted to make a story about outsiders like that was one of their marching orders from the start and one of the ways he said they did that was to keep him he said that they were getting notes from warner brothers like when's new gonna join the main plot and he, he said that the reason they did that was because like that's what a normal action hero would do you know he charges into the action places himself at the center and propels the story they wanted Newt to be someone who is constantly trying to pull away He's, you know, he's pulling away from the main story. He doesn't, he's pulling away from the world of humanity essentially and trying to do his own thing. Um, But, and, and so for me, this, this comes to some interesting questions as far as like the, like the quote unquote rules of screenplay structure Um, in that for me, I love every second nude is on screen. I love watching everything he does. So when you ask, like when it breaks the screenplay Sorry, when it breaks the screenplay rules of not involving the protagonist in the main plot before the thirty-minute mark or whatever, like I'm like, is that a problem? Like, I, I for me, the, the, this rules of screenwriting are They're, they're great. They're, they're, great, more, like they're like more like guidelines. <laughs> yeah, they're excellent <laughs> guidelines. Uh, but if if your story can work without following them, there's no. It's not inherently a flaw to break them, and I, I think. But also, I do think this is following. A, a, a rather classic trope of the stranger comes into town with his own, doing his own thing and then slowly gets sucked into a larger plot slash conspiracy against his will. Um, It's it's like, it's, it's like the bread and butter of, you know, airport legal novels, like the Jack Reacher novels use it all the time. Like think uh in the heat of the night, like all, every single murder, she wrote episode, like Columbo, all of that. Like that's a kind of a classic plot where you have the, the hero's kind of doing their own thing and get pulled in. Usually they're pulled in earlier than nude is, uh, granted. but So I, I don't think it's all that out of a, a structure, but um, I, th- I think the one misstep in that regard is he gets pulled into the main plot at the hour mark when Tina brings him to Makuza in the case. Then they go and chase down the snake, bird, uh, the Akami yes, thing. thing. I think that sequence feels a little oddly placed having that sequence after yeah. they, just got, you know, they just got they almost got executed by Graves. I, thought, I feel like if they, well, I'm not a huge fan of that sequence, but if they really wanted, I think they should have put that, fit, fit that in earlier or something. Yeah, that way they More, could at, be oh, like,
2: well. finally, we have all these. And then... Yeah,
0: yeah. then they... But they, yeah, yeah, going from the, this incredible threat that, that comes to them and then going back to cute Fantastic Beasts is a little weird
2: structuring. Well, and I think, too, like, to... To, to your idea of bringing it beforehand or possibly cutting one of the other creature encounters altogether, um, w- one thing you could do is... Or
0: somehow, or somehow working this into the plot, like maybe Grindelwald uses the Occamy as bait to bring
2: him in or... Like, or really hammer into the fact that they're looking for a beast that's causing all of this. And mm. like, they sort of touch on it, but they don't zoom in on that enough, I think. Uh, like 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 we, we have to go and catch this
0: beast so maybe we can buy our pardons from Makusa or something.
2: Or, e- e- or even do it beforehand. And then as they're catching the Akami, they're like, aha, we found the problem. You know? Ah, yeah, yeah. And then that is also Graves' opportunity to throw them under the bus for all these, you know, the things the obscurial is causing. Um I should say credence. He has a name. <laughs> <laughs> He's but, uh, a
1: person, and his name is Credence.
2: <laughs> okay, is, it, is it an Obscurial or an Obscurus? It's obscurus is the parasite. Obscurial is the person that the parasite is. Oh, the ho- okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's not
2: confusing at all. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's the correct uh, delineation. Because he has an Obscurus from a Sudanese boy in his case as well, which is damning. Yeah.
0: yeah. So how, how do y'all feel that kind of... That- the concept of trying to make a story about outsiders on the outside functions
1: well so i mean i there's a lot of stories that i really like where it's like the guy comes into a conflict and is drawn in i mean it's just it's you see it done in a very particular like western way all the time um I mean, it's still, you'll still see it. Even I mean, Fury Road went that long ago, and my goodness, Max is just along for the ride for the longest portion of that movie. Um, so, like, I'm not at all bothered by the, like, the, we have this pre-existing conflict that he's not necessarily privy to and over the course of the movie kind of gets drawn into. But what feels different in this case is it feels like it's not as if he's kind of there doing his own thing, and then slowly these things merge. It feels like we've got two different stories running concurrently, um, and so like there's weird it, it going back and forth between them feels jarring. And because of how unrelated they, are. I mean, there's a relation to it in that you know like they're the the presence of these magical creatures running around is like it's affecting you know the the wizard security, all of that stuff.
0: And it's being blamed for all the damage caused by. uh, Yeah. So like it
1: it has enough crossover, but it it still feels like we're watching two different things. And then like when those, I mean, one, I do, I did have the same problem where it's like, okay, Newt's brought in. He's, he's like, you know, he's no longer being dismissed by the Madam President. Like he's no longer being like, it's, he's, he's in the story. And then we kind of go and do that sequence Which I'm not the big the 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 whole roach in the teapot thing was it's like a little silly to me that whole slow motion thing, Um, but even even that notwithstanding, it even the way he was brought in feels a little weird. Where it's like, and maybe this is just me bucking up against like wizard politics, but just like immediate execution for like both him and. uh tina. tina just like it's just like no real
0: i i have a feeling that graves was bypassing yeah, i think actual, so too. whatever actual
1: i do too but again it, it kind of it goes back had. to this thing feeling like really it's about like the government is just about 15 people in a building Whereas, like, I hey, Graves, can you take care of that? And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. Like that, it just feels like there's no real system in place, and so he can just kind of like wave his hand, and all of a sudden, like these four orderlies are just like, oh yeah, we we'll go on and kill some people. It's yeah, just-
0: yeah. I, I, I think it's it's a bit of both. I have him, you know, getting on the law, but also, I think it is indicative of the state of the, of the culture. It's corrupt. In America. Man. There is a real fascist angle to it all
2: i think it, it um, would have helped if tina had protested more and been like what we haven't even faced trial you know like
1: it's it just it felt like you know they're caught and then he's talking to him and then like the next scene like we're walking to our deaths and everybody's just like well huh, this is the way it works guess it sucks but i don't know it was it, it was just says like something boom,
0: boom. about the
2: culture hap- over there i think also but it doesn't feel where... like an,
1: an intentional statement about the culture it just to me it feels uh, like it uh, was, mm.
2: I will push back at the ball- against that a little bit because Tina specifically knows one of the orderlies and is like pleading with her and the orderly has just like completely detached herself. Like she does this all the time. You know, like mm-hmm. she's just like, oh, it doesn't hurt. Uh, that, darling. They, they have it, a room. Like yeah. They have the room where they do this. Like it's... Pensive acid
0: bath of death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like this, is, this is a regular occurrence. Yeah. And the fact that she's so terrified like and and the, and I think Tina's fear throughout the entire film I think is one of the biggest things I'm talking about as far as the state of the world she is constantly on edge every time she's talking like you let something out how could you do that do you have any idea the pressure we're under right now like she's in that mode for the for, for almost the entirety of the film Be, and for me that, that that's that's the world building. that's her her emotional state why
2: is she like this because of all these pressures of, of the culture um and part of that is i think they've they've had lines that indicate this but they also indicate other things and it kind of skews the message like early on when she says do you know anything about the state of wizarding culture in america and he's just like i know you have really backwards laws about not being able to be friends or marry her. And it makes you feel like, oh, this is an interracial marriage thing, but it's it's way, way deeper than that, you know it's like in it's in a, a full severance of relationships yes it's it's completely like it's not like, oh, you can't marry a a muggle because we don't fraternize with muggles that way. It's like you can't interact with these people. you are endangering us just by speaking to them, you know that and that is very different from the wizarding culture, which is also very segregated in the UK in the Harry Potter movies. But I don't think they did a good enough job clarifying that in the film. Yeah. They're much more free
0: around muggles. And like they're, if one of them accidentally, if Daedalus Diggle shoots off fireworks, Oh, that's just Daedalus Diggle. Whereas (laughs) Makusa would probably throw him into the the death potion (laughs) uh, for that so, so um,
1: one question i do have though is is you know talking about just like the you know do you have any idea of the state of the wizarding world? like where where is our and you know when she's talking you know do you understand the pressure one where is that pressure coming from like what it just feels like though this world doesn't exist beyond these walls like
0: where the general fear of muggles i think has taken hold more in america salem witch trials maybe i don't know maybe maybe that's the may that i problem. import
2: some pottermore knowledge well <laughs> i'll go ahead and i i know we're talking about the movie and i'm sorry because it's a bit distracting um but there, there's this culture way back before uh america was founded Makuza was founded before like the, the magical america was separated from britain before muggle america and one one of the reasons is a lot of wizards and witches that were in trouble in europe just fled to america for obscurity i go to america <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, they, they also use like the puritanical craze against witches to uh to backstab each other and stuff like that so there's actually a line of descendants of wizards who used anti-witch and wizard sentiments in america to punish witch wizard enemies and those people ended up eventually marrying into muggle families and teaching them that there are wizards and witches and they are real and they should hate them and they should fear them. And that is what n- leads down to our second Salemers and people like that in America. So the relations are a lot more strained than in Europe. And again, the movie does nothing to
0: that. That's, that's <laughs> or, the thing is like, but, but for me, I, I, I don't care. Like, we don't ha- we don't ha- a- a- we don't ask these questions in Harry Potter, like it's just because I, this don't, is I don't have
2: to, and I I can I've... I can
0: headcam and all I can the the different things, but I, I for me at least like it's it was never really an issue. Like this is the state. There are any number of pa- plausible reasons. I don't know. This just doesn't but bother I, me. I just
1: think in Harry Potter, I don't ask these questions because I don't have to because the it's in the movie. It is like a, the the fear is. It's not just we don't have oh, our, our two or three primary characters are telling us this. It's like not the the entire world of the movie
2: is telling you this. Um,
0: uh, I would say that's the case here as well. I think that's so.
2: true here as well, too. I, I know I'm importing a lot of knowledge, but even with that importing, you can still see it on the screen. And to your credit, James, like you can see it on the screen and still not fully grasp what it's what it's hitting you with
1: that's the thing it's it's not even necessarily like oh none of this is there it's just like you know film is a visual medium it's about it's about seeing it and feeling it and being involved in it and this feels like it's just present enough to like just for the sake of following a plot but i don't feel i don't know i don't feel like as we move from all the different sequences i wasn't feeling like this paranoia i wasn't feeling the muggle tension because it just it, it felt like we just didn't see that we just didn't see it we were just told and again just to keep pulling from other things controversially movie i love bvs like you know the whole the it's a battle of different ideologies between these two figures and we see that played out like we don't we don't fear like we don't worry about what superman might do just because batman's like oh i'm kind of freaking out about this we've got the trials we've got the montages we've got the the kid watching Superman burned on on uh the new like the the them hanging the fake Superman and burning like we've got all of these things like the world itself is just involved in this where it's just it's all over the screen but here it just it feels like we're we're just being told by her like hey we've we're we're under a lot of pressure we're like we, we've got all this stuff okay, going but, but I don't
0: I, I don't I don't think this film has to build all of that for again excepting you've read the books you understand very much the fear Wizarding World has of exposure. And we've seen the way it is in England. Now we're seeing how that that very canonical, ever-present fear in the Harry Potter series plays out in America. And it's the same fear, just taking up a notch. And I think yeah. we very much see that notch. I guess the, the, because every single wizard we meet is enveloped in that.
1: I guess the missing thing is the Harry Potter series had Hogwarts. And so we had an entire... An entire community, a fairly large community, that we got to see all these things take shape in. But again,
2: here it just and an education, literally, yeah, like it, uh, it was into the world.
1: all of these things. Whereas here it just, again, it just felt like we had a group of like, literally enough people that you that you don't need really more than a than both your hands to count. And they they all seem pretty uneasy, and that's that's kind of what you got to go on. But it it still it just feels. I don't know. I I just I guess I don't feel that tension and that pressure.
0: Which for me raises some interesting questions about the nature of how they're integrated. Because it kind of seems that they're they're living side by side with all these muggles, while also being expected to live separate lives. Like, like uh, it raises a bunch of fascinating questions about just just the kind of this the societal. Um, I would have loved to have world. seen that
1: to see like what does it look like if you don't have this massive amounts of english countryside to just go build societies on like what does it look Mm -hmm. like to try to coexist in new york yeah
2: i think um i think one other thing cutting against the movie in this regard is the shaw family being so dismissive of the idea of witches and wizards it kind of undercuts the paranoia
0: one of them is a full-on believer but yeah yeah
2: that's true that is true But he's dismissed as the kook he's you know not the power behind the throne you know so it's uh it it does undercut a little bit that tension between the muggle world and the wizarding world with the wizarding with the muggle world being so in denial that the wizarding world exists you know if you had a second salemer that was taken a little more seriously um that could help but i think I think What's the second also-
1: Salemer was the, was the person that they're talking about, like was a senator or something,
0: you know? Like- mm. But even then, I think moving into the techn- technological age, that, that fear of someone as high as the, the son of the editor to the biggest newspaper in the country, the brother of an influential senator, believes in this. Like, this is getting close, they're too close for comfort. Even if he's still considered crazy now, all it takes is one incident
2: that's fair and he's
0: there i told you so i have evidence
2: and that one incident like, does he, come like the,
0: like the mad prophets are already at the ready for a single incident to light the match and, and they could gr- ma- and, and that
1: could have happened like that's a great like kind of political politically charged kind of in the in that part of the world where it's like you know somebody could just say like oh well, he's a crazy he's like a crazy with access to the ears of the you know the owner of the newspaper and a potential presidential candidate how long before his ravings are given ear to like it's just like i would like i mean partly just because i really like political bureaucrat just like those kinds of scenes in movies but if we were to just spend more real time having like those real kind of conversations play out in full as opposed to just like very short bursts of dialogue
2: um i don't know yeah, I think it would be good if Graves was involved too, because then you could still be playing the Grendelwald uh, game and building towards the future. Yeah, mongering. yes, exactly. Yeah. So you, you, you know, I, one thing I appreciate about you guys is every time we talk about a movie, we don't just criticize it; we brainstorm ways it could have been fixed. You know, so uh-huh. so I I like that productive element in in what we do. Um, and I appreciate that, James. Like, we're, we're not always going to agree, but I think all of us agree that there are certain times we could tweak things to make it a Listen, little.
1: Listen, Hollywood writers just need to let me give all their scripts a once-over, is all I'm saying.
2: Exactly.
0: <laughs> all right, so I, I think we've kind of exhausted this topic. Moving on. I promise we'll get to a lot of, a lot of praises, but I, I do want to, I think, talk about the next big thing holding this film back for me. I think, like, just the, like the grace of Harry Potter. And that is, Yates' direction is weirdly just okay here um as someone who established himself as such a truly distinctive filmmaker in the first four films this movie it does kind of at often feel from a directorial standpoint not a writing standpoint from a directorial standpoint kind of generic blockbuster um and for me I, i i think that is probably almost entirely due to the fact that he was also directing *Legend of Tarzan* at the exact same time. The you know, the films came out months from each other. There was there was there was no portion there's was, there's was almost no portion of this film's you know pre-production, production, post-production that he wasn't also splitting his time with uh, *Tarzan*. And I think I think that hypothesis is, is bolstered by the fact that *Crimes of Grindelwald* is an inc- exponential step up from the directorial standpoint. So I think he was splitting his time and uh, it's not bad. Like uh, the thing is like the direction is always very effective and adequate. It gets across what it needs to. And it's very rarely just dist- aside from the, the CGI, which Holy crap, but aside from the CGI from a filming standpoint, it gets what it gets, it gets done what it needs to do, but it's, it's never has, it doesn't have that flair that all of his Harry Potter films had. Like he doesn't, or distinctiveness. It's just,
2: it's just, okay. It's, it's, Competent but unrisky, you know, the paint by numbers kind of thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, as somebody who thinks like uh, the Half Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows Part One are like among some of the most extraordinarily well directed blockbusters ever, this does feel like weirdly bland to me, Perfunctory.
0: Yeah, and it goes into like the lighting and the color correction in particular almost feels unfinished this is like this kind of very flat creamy bluish purplish kind of like like it doesn't there's there's just just a lack of kind of like contrast and just pulling out distinct looks in the color grading it's just like
1: it felt like we're we're one like kind of digital pass over the footage away from like just what it looked like on the set in a way
2: yeah yeah it's it's like that and and I, I don't think that's the case here i haven't done enough research but it's almost like we ran up to the deadline and did okay this is good enough <laughs> you know which is the i'm pretty sure is the case for the cgi okay. um <laughs> which cuz like
0: this this the vfx in his films have generally been very good here like they're not the worst i've ever seen but 90% of them are also mm, not great yeah um, like, there's a real cartoonishness, car, cartooniness to them. And that hurts, like, the scenes that are trying to be, like, really wondrous. Like, the scene, like, where they're baking the strudel. And it's like, oh, look, isn't this magic awesome? And that is 100% a cartoon you know, cartoon from 2003. Um, or, or when we're going through, you know, the case and his magical menagerie. All these, like, a lot of really cool
2: designs, but just the VFX are yeah. just never... There and, and you see the difference in Crimes of Grendelwald with the case in particular, where you can see, uh, yeah, I, I, honestly, and the creatures as well. The creatures yes, yes, definitely. I, I, the case is a great case in point, <laughs> see what yeah. there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but I think, um, the like I know it's supposed to feel SETI and kind of virtual and like a an, uh, newt's best attempt at simulating an environment for these creatures. Mm. but it does feel really steady <laughs> you know like uh-huh. it's like i don't feel like i'm in a magical place where a wizard has kind of put up their best attempt at the creature's nat- best you know, natural environment i feel like we're at a director's second best attempt at that <laughs> creature's nat- there's also you I, know, I had yeah, a hard time
1: fi- like getting a fix on just the geography I think part of it it's
0: it's magic. there is no well, like and that's what made there's it. no rules. there's no laws. It's bigger on the inside.
1: yeah, but the thing, like, I don't know, there's always been a real sense of tangibility to the magic before. Um, like you just like sure it's bigger on the inside than the outside. But when you get down there, it's a real place. And I think part of like why it was hard to really settle in on what this place was is, it's something that i really like with him is his weird camera work but i feel like a lot of like the kind of and now we're going to do a like we're going to kind of go up and do a barrel roll and then arrive at the next place he's at it's like well now i don't don't really i'm having a hard time figuring out where everything is in relation to other things it just feels like we're kind of like it's magic it's like
2: the tent tent is a good analog though because the tent this this is where
0: hermione's beaded bag yes where it's like it's we have no idea how much stuff is in there, but it's all within an arm's reach. Yeah, but, the, but I think conceptually
2: the tent is the same, and the tent does have like a continuous geography within yeah. within it. But, it I, felt I, like but the... I think
0: this one has like weird infinities, like there's yes. like doorways that go off forever. Like I, I don't think I don't think the space is at all settled in here. Like I think depending where you turn. It's a pocket dimension. Go,
1: yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know. It just it felt that felt weirdly communicated. Whereas the tent
0: is really the tent is yeah. just what, what you see on the inside is what's there.
1: What it felt like to this me is was scary. it was that, like, this is that like, Daffy Duck cartoon where it's it's the painter just painting new things. <laughs> it's like, oh and now you're over here.
2: Yeah, it's 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 very abstract and like existentially terrifying in a way. <laughs> you know? Yeah. One thing about Yates's direction that
0: I think is that is, is not immediately visible, but I think is a, a massive improvement over at least, I think I would say a Deathly Hallows part two is just think about the way he directs actors in this film versus his last three Harry Potter films. Like that real austere stillness where kind of, everyone just kind of stands there and fairly quietly delivers those lines. This, like Seen most like there's very little movement in the actors between each other. Like they don't have any kind of creative stage. Like all of that sense of stillness is gone. Like people in this film, <laughs> they act like people like there's just, there's so much more life and liveliness and movement in the interactions and the dialogue. It's like he kind I think I, and I, I like that style in half blood Prince and deathly house part one. I think it really became a detriment in deathly house part two. Um, and so I was really, I was getting tired of it. I was really glad that in this film, he was able to just like break free of that and just kind of be lively again
2: and, you know, and direct with energy. I think part of that is like, even though it's fake New York, it's New York, you know, so there's a lot of kinetic energy. Like, I, I feel like even if you're pretending like New York, cause I, I think this was still, this was still filmed in England, correct? Uh, yeah yeah yes it was so like even if you're faking new york though you have the sense that things must be constantly moving and things must be fast-paced and i think that does come across or or even just scenes with two people just like the the direction of the
0: acting style is it's just it's pepped up a bit and like i think i think that is a huge factor into why i love these characters so deeply so like and it, so well it, it's you, you won't see it immediately if you're just like i'm looking at direction like you're not it's not in the visuals but i think as far as just the feeling and mood of the film it is incredibly uh vital to you know to how the film feels moving on to this new cast of characters um how do we feel about Mr. Newt's Commander played by Eddie Redmayne i
2: love i love Newt Commander i think he is a credit to y'all's house <laughs> <laughs> uh, a hero Hufflepuff deserves, uh, but not the one it needs right now. <laughs> I just had to work that joke in there. But, yeah, I, I really do. I really love Newt. I love his personality. I love um, the way he carries himself. He's very awkward and not uh, – he doesn't have a ton of incredible social skills, <laughs> which which is part of, you know, like – his main focus being animals essentially um he relates more to creatures you know he calls humans the most dangerous creatures on the earth you know like um mm-hmm. and, and, and in a way that's haggard like he, he's very haggard in a lot of ways because you know he is expelled from hogwarts loves creatures is perhaps sometimes in denial about exactly how dangerous said creatures might be you know but Hagrid was still very, like, personable and, you know, I'm going to yeah. hug you guys. And, and Newt is a little more, mm, I really just want to get back to caring for my creatures, you know? And in a way, that vulnerability he has, whereas Harry is a little more, uh, as a protagonist, a little more forward, I think it, it does help to make Newt really relatable. And that, like, he's got these obvious insecurities about dealing with people. Um, He's very focused on his work, um, which is very helpful, Puff, of course. (laughs) But uh, I I think Eddie Redmayne does a a fantastic job of portraying a kind of awkward person having to play the role of an action hero. And I, I can't sing the praises of Newton enough. How about you, James?
1: Uh, so I, I really like the characterization. I like Redman. He's he's really likable in it. Um, like it's in a way that almost like contradicts his like impersonableness. Like this kind of like shut-in person. Because I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. He's kind of a chill dude. Uh, he's he, I don't know. He just has this kind of his smile, his the weird like body language he has. There's a lot of things that just kind of make him immediately like enjoyable to watch um i think the the only like the aspect of him that like as it went further and further on i was like maybe a little bit much is his like complete disregard for like the muggle world and everything like just the stupefying the guy and like um you know not seeing the issue with robbing the or you know the thing potentially robbing the bank and then I, I was wondering, like the Jacob was seen by the guy and he didn't obviate that guy's mind. So it felt like he's like, well, the bank owner saw your face, but oh, well, and he was just going to like leave him there. And then like the not knocking over all of these, just like thousands and hundreds well, of thousands. We, of-
0: we don't know how much he was going to fix. He got, he was like, he was about to obviate Jacob. He got knocked out, then arrested by Tina. Like so so fair. he might've, but it felt, like it's like I, when he got to the when he got to the apartment after the hippopotamus happened, um, like he he obliviated that guy. He went and fixed the entire thing, so he might have gone may well have gone back and fixed everything. That's we don't fair. quite know.
2: Well, also it, there's another um, possible UK to US difference here in that we know in magical Britain they actually have like a whole obliviation department in in the uh ministry um and you don't we don't know this yet but uh his brother theseus is a ministry member um whereas in america they probably don't even need that department because they're so segregated out from the muggle society they're called the execution squad (laughs) Exactly.
1: exactly but overall i i do really like it it's just like the like Three minutes of like knocking over all of these, all of these priceless jewels, and so like, come <laughs> on! dude.
0: I love the Duffer. Um, for me, I love Newt Newt's Commander on just like an absurd level. This I get more like personal, just as someone who feels very awkward and at times kind of just on the outside of humanity. Sometimes it, it's it's. We rarely see someone like this done well in film, like, and almost never in like a big budget film,
2: and almost never at the center.
0: Yeah, and usually when they have someone, oh, this is the the awkward introvert, they're like actually a totally an extrovert with their own posse of cool kids around them. Like, movie versions of an awkward weirdo are generally fairly fairly cool people, um, like. This, like him down to every movement and all his little physical ticks feels like he really gets, this is a person who is truly feels to be outside of humanity. Like he, he has chosen beasts. And I, I think, I think the fact that he, I think him not being central to the plot of the film for most of the film is a thematic choice as well. He has chosen to separate himself from this world. And he, he had multiple opportunities throughout the film to place himself at the center of the plot and, you know, to figure out what was going on to help Tina to get the job done. But all he is doing, he's trying to just find his creatures and get out of this story. He wants to be out of this story. And the thing that brings him essentially into the plot and into humanity is he eventually sees credence essentially as one of his, you know, lonely, lost, broken, hurting, fantastic beasts. You know, it's not even through Credence as a human, it's through Credence as an Obscurus. Like, I think that there's a really fascinating thematic angle as well. It's happening in the plot structure, but also like just in the whole, like, why is this fantastic beast? It's because you have a character who is you know, withdrawn from the world of humanity, is has given himself over to, you know, he hides in his little case to the world, a world of his own creation, with his beast, and we're drawing, drawing him out of that, drawing him back into the larger struggles of the world. And this becomes the, it's his central arc, a big part of his arc in the sequel, is just getting out of his shell and learning to to consider himself a human again. Like he speaks about humans separate, in, like as if there's something separate from himself in this film, and you know, and so like it's drawing him back through this wounded fantastic beast that is credence uh bare bones and i think that that's really i I love that that aspect of his you know awkward social anxiety whatever you want to call it is also essential to the themes and the plot and all of that it's it's one of those things where it's 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 a plot that doesn't it's not immediately obvious but i think the more you think about it the more ties you realize there are there are between all the various um threads and if this were a novel you probably probably would be told uh you know a bit more clearly but I, I you know i love
2: searching that stuff out too i think um also we have you know you mentioned him latching on to credence as an obscurus and and as evidence of that he has an obscurus in his case and what's interesting is you know like with that that conversation with graves where you know he says oh so it's useless in its current state and he's like what well, this is a magical parasite that killed a child. what What on earth would you want to use it for? You know, I, I love just the horror in his eyes, yeah, as and he's saying that, but at the same time, like he kept this thing. You know, like, he can't bring his if there is a creature to destroy, that is it. A <laughs> magical parasite that killed a child. That is the creature to destroy. And even he is just like, as long as it's over there,
0: <laughs> you know, like but- I I think he has a he has a lot of pity for them. Like yeah. because the obscurials, they are outsiders. Like they're people who you know live a life of pain and suffering and loneliness and repression. Um
2: and it's why he and Tina are ideal for reaching to credence. Yeah. And I love it. Like it's not just Newt's the weirdo. Like Tina is
0: almost every bit as much of a a weirdo weirdo outsider as he is. Jacob is Jacob is Jacob, and I love him. Um, Jacob is the best of us. <laughs> yeah, T- Tina is uh, uh, Queenie. Also, ha- is a real odd duck. Like, it's not just like the uh, one character is kind of a weirdo, and the, and then he's you know put together with, you know, the hot popular girl. Like everyone at the center of this film is just an outsider, and I I, I really enjoy that aspect, and, and that, that's that's aspect is really interesting digging into his uh, relationship with Jacob, in that. He brings Jacob along, in spite you know he brings him along in spite of his distrust of people, because like he brings Jacob along because he knows Jacob is going to be obliviated, so that's why I can bring him along on you know on this my little you know bring him into my case, bring him along to catch the rumpet. But also he brings him along. He didn't have to like, right. despite the fact that he has this deep distrust of people and just wants to separate himself. He still wants to show people his work. He wants an audience. He wants like, look at my animals. Aren't they really cool? Like he has that human urge to show off, show off and to share the things he loves with other people. But he has to do it with his person. That's going to be obliviated because the world can't know about the secret. It's too dangerous. Like that, That's so, that's so fascinating. and it, It's just interesting. And, and then the, the final, uh, the final admission at the end. Oh my
2: gosh, it breaks my heart. There's a part of that too, that, um, not just wanting Jacob to see it, but he's also working on a manuscript, you know, and of course Mm. in the very first Harry Potter book, you know, right there in Harry's curriculum is Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them by Newt Scamander, you know, and so it is heartwarming to know that his quest to have these creatures understood and, and not just something to be exterminated is in a way realized, you know, granted, I think, uh, nobody in the magical world short of Hagrid <laughs> is going to appreciate his work to that degree, you know, but we do know that eventually if, if, not, if only as an academic Newt is able to break out of his shell enough to let other people see what he sees in these beasts um, and that's, that's an implication it's not exactly textual per se uh, but I, I I really like to think about that. That's a that's a that's a place I want to see Newt be by the end of this little series. <laughs> you know, I think we were talking about Jacob, and I sidetracked us. James,
0: what what are your feelings on uh, Jacob Kowalski?
1: Um, I like him. He's he's a fun personality. He's he's like the kind of character that you want on these kinds of stories. Um, and I de- the the energy he brings is like it's fun. The, I was the the part that uh, got the the biggest laugh from me was the was his laugh going into the case. I was like, ah, that's that's a a good a good gag. I I feel like in terms of like characterization, there isn't as much to him at least just on first viewing. But but I thought he was a, like a fun a fun uh, personality for the group.
0: Yeah, well, no surprise. I love this guy so much. Um, you know, just the little touches like he's a he's a World War One veteran, stuck in a factory job, but he really just he wants to you know get a load and build a bakery and make pastries. Like I want to make pastries because they make people happy. Like he's that
2: kind of guy. He's just the, he's just a good soul. Yeah, Jacob Jacob is a, is a good personality and also a necessary character because. In Harry Potter, we had Harry as the outsider that did not know anything about the wizarding world. And so it's natural for people to explain things to Harry. Uh, Here in Fantastic Beasts, our main character is an adult wizard who has already gone through, uh, not all of it, obviously, but through his educational years and is living as an adult, is traveling the world. We need a viewpoint character with which random magical lore can be hurled at and it not be blatant that we're sitting there the exposition that no character would be talking about. So you need a Jacob on the team. And if you're gonna have a Jacob on the team Make him a Jacob. Make him a Jacob. Yes, <laughs> exactly. But I, also to that point, I
0: like that the 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 um having him doped up on, on Mertlap Venom for most of that time it also it, it allows him to just kind of just go along with things so we're not bogged as bogged down with all the questions he would be asking you know if like he was fully you know fully of his senses and dragged into this world it'd be just nothing but questions and explanations but having him kind of doped up so he's just like okay this is my world now I got it. Like he just kind of goes along with it. It allows them to to bypass a lot of questions that would have had to have been answered, because they know the audience. Um, knows some of it already. Yeah, knows all, most of this already, so they can kind of very strategically employ the questions he asks and the explanations they need given, without just
2: overloading us. Yep, and it's good that Newt is foreign to America too, because things about wizarding culture in America can be explained to Newt. Yeah,
0: um, and. I, I love that he, he just, like, he views this day as just this really weird gift. Like, he, he was stuck in his life, he hated it, and he, just this magical world has been opened up to him, and he knows the entire time that he it won't last, and it's going to be taken away, but he's just enjoying it as it goes, and going to get as much of it out, out of it as he can. It's just like a little line, you know, I don't think I'm dreaming, we'll give it away. I ain't got the brains to make this up. <laughs> you know, he's he's kind of dopey, but all of that just adds to how
2: lovable he is. I can't smile enough at the, the little pastry creatures at the end that he's, like, dreamed up in his hazy, half-obliviated state. Ah, it's just nice. And just the, the, his and um, uh, Newt's
0: slowly growing relationship uh, throughout the film. It was like, you know, people like you, Mr. Kowalski, don't they? I'm sure people might, people like you too. No, not really. I annoy people. <laughs> hey, that's me. Representation. Um <laughs> and like they're they're bonding over both being soldiers. Uh you know, you know, of course they fought in the war. Everyone fought in the war. And I, worked, I worked mostly with dragons. Ukrainian iron bellies. Eastern Front. Like, I want to see that movie. Like, Ukrainian
2: iron bellies on the Eastern Front. By the way, it's amazing. Same dragon, same species of dragon as was in Deathly Hallows. Hmm, wait. In Really? Uh, the Gringotts one, yep. Okay. That was a Ukrainian iron belly. I, I, I just the, the
0: various adventures they go through, like, like the Niffler in the jewelry store. I, I just, I love... Yates' sense of comedy, it's like just going out the window with the Niffler post there, and the jewel, the necklace slowly sliding off its arm. The, 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 I love the, the Niffler. Niffler. The Niffler is the greatest creation of the Harry Potter universe. Just like full stop. <laughs> That's it. Is it's just like the baby Yoda of the Harry Potter films. uh how, how are you feeling about the Niffler, James?
1: uh I'm down with the Niffler. He's very cute. <laughs>
0: just the the amount of personality they give him just like his the way he breathes and little (laughs) chittering like
1: my favorite joke with the niffler is when he's like he's quickly opening all the drawers but he's like he's looking so fast he's not even looking in the drawers he's opening and so one of the times (laughs) he pulls it out the niffler's like right there and he just shuts it back like he like he genuinely (laughs) missed it
0: like when he's like in the bag he's like laying on his back all like fat and happy on a pile of gold and just slowly shoving a gold bar in his pouch yeah yeah and the, the way he tickles his belly just a
2: pile of it's, gold a, it's like a out. really small harmless dragon you know it's just it's <laughs> got to have all the shiny things you know and i, I love that
0: like it has like a, just a, a glimpse of sentience or self-awareness just the the, the, the looks and weird, like kind of the, the comedy second takes and any things
2: that, that'll happen um between him and Newt are great. I love uh, how at the end, I don't know if you noticed, <laughs> but in addition to the latches, Newt has like yarn tied around the case. The so nippler's is <laughs> kind of what caused all of this.
0: And then at the end, when they're standing in the street covered in jewelry, the cops come, they went that way, officer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dan Fogler's comedic timing is incredible. Um, let me get like the Rumpet Chase in the zoo. Why should I wear this? Because your skull is susceptible <laughs> to breakage under immense force.
2: Um, <laughs>
0: don't, don't worry.
2: do people often lion. Do people often believe you when you tell them not to worry? <laughs> <laughs> well, my
0: philosophy is that worrying means you suffer twice. Um, but <laughs> there's uh, a sequence about a giant, very horny animal who wants to have her way with a poor hippo and then with Jacob. Horny. I love that we're having that. What?
2: <laughs> horny. What, what did I say? Uh, horny. It's a, a rumpet. It has yeah. a giant horn. Uh, ah. goodbye oh yes. It's explosive. It's the pun. It's explosively <laughs> horny. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> oh, my God. You'll have to cut that joke out, I think.
0: Nope. It's standing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love that they just that, that whole sequence exists in like what's, what's essentially a family film.
2: Although it's it kind of is. It's, and it's a, super and The execution kind of brings us into a more adult territory but it's it's I, that
0: sequence is so funny to me um and the, i think the rumpet is probably the the best effects in the film um like that that design I, I wonder if like a different effects house handled it like yeah i think they just did a really good job capturing the sense of weight and scale of the creature just the weird little pig eye the piggy eyes it has and the, the very small but active intelligence, like when it, it sticks his horn in the tr- in the truck and then at the, the look of anticipation, <laughs> and steps like, back and watches <laughs> you. My dog has made that exact expression.
2: Uh-huh. That's why it's like kind of funny to me. And just
0: the whole the comedy of that entire scene where you have like Newt's trying to convince a baboon to give him back his wand, <laughs> as Jacob's up in a tree petrified uh I just, this film is the way this film goes funny i i really really love it what are your thoughts on the, all the um just the uh creature mayhem james
1: it's mixed i think for me um like there are elements that i really like i love the design of both the niffler and the um the what is it rumpet the rumpet. The rumpet. rumpet yeah um re- i really like those designs a lot
0: crumply horn snorkak <laughs>
1: yeah, it just rolls off the tongue. Um, but i f- I feel like it's I mean, it's part of my issue with just the script where it feels like it's like it's being a different movie. Um, and so, in a weird way, it, like I feel like most of the sequences to me, at least just feel like they go on like a little too long. Um, I don't know. I think some of this may just come with like rewatches where you like you just end up things become more familiar to you you know, are like oh this this is the part where they do this and you just kind of like lose yourself to the fun of it but like the my first time watching i was just like i mean it was, it's a fun time i guess but it, it wasn't like i don't know <laughs> i feel like such a debbie downer i don't want to but i was like
0: ryan do you have a good opinion unlike james
2: <laughs> <laughs> i i get where like um we mentioned earlier the biggest offender is the the akame is is it said yeah um is but and the demi guys in the same sequence although i, I feel less the demi less, guys is cute yeah i feel less uh, i like that i like guys. that
1: guy i want to chill with that guy
2: yeah but um i i think that if it wasn't for the fact that it you know especially for first time watch you, you have questions you have pressing needs that are hitting our characters and then we have these moments where the, that is all sidetracked for what feels like, and and essentially is just goofy monster time. Um, and I love goofy monster time. So I, I get where James feels like, oh, this is going on a little too long. Um, and it's not exactly tied in, you know, the, there is the loose thread of for a while there, they're thinking maybe Newt's, Creatures are the uh obscurus that's terrorizing new york but uh but I think they're fun enough to where i I don't feel too bad about them I think yeah, the the alchemy is a weird
0: scene like it it's one of those sequences that looks like you could tell very clearly that each actor was filmed like alone on a green screen like. It's just a weirdly stitched together. Again, the, you know, the effects aren't great, but just the way it cuts between each actor by themselves clearly against the green screen. Like, it's very much getting flashbacks to, like, the prequel style of filmmaking, uh not in a great way. Although the concept of just the, the size, the way it changes in size, the way it jumps it jumps into the teapot and just keeps going
2: in, like, there's, there's some cool stuff happening still. I love the idea of the alchemy. I, I, I even love the The idea that the Demi guys has been with Newt so long that it's just like secondary caretaker, mm-hmm. and I even like the idea of the the uh, cockroach in a teapot. I like it's so cool to me that Newt is so familiar with the creatures that he's like, I know how to trap this incredible amount. Like you know, he he found one of these in the wild, mm-hmm. you know, and f- discovered somehow. That you know you you can trap them in a tiny space if you bait them right, but I, I agree with James earlier when he said it is a bit silly that we have this long slow mo shot of mm-hmm. the of the the cockroach going into the teapot. Not yet, like most effective use of slow. It
1: feels like a step no, just a good bit too far into like too silly territory where it's like we're we're flinging cockroaches First of all, try throwing a cockroach that it doesn't it doesn't weigh much you're not gonna have, i've never tried you, well trust me you're not it, it doesn't so yeah. arc gracefully and so the idea like
0: the entire con- <laughs> also some of them can fly
1: it's like the entire conceit of that is yeah, like God, throwing done... a cockroach like 30 feet across the room as the snake is swiveling around probably kicking up dust and debris and everything and like in slow mo running across the room to meet it i'm like this is i don't know I've, it's, things like the, it, it goes a bit too far i was like i'm having a hard time like with the idea that this silliness coexists with like the drama of this movie and even the drama of like the previous Harry Potter, like this, this whole sequence just shouldn't be a thing that can happen in this world. It's it's a bit too goofy to me.
0: <laughs> One beat I really like is when you have the, uh, the Demi guys on Jacob's shoulder and then it vanishes and the camera pans over and you have the, the uh, Occamies just giant face staring
2: very intently at the cockroach in his hand. And because because we know that the Demi guys has, like, slight prescience, but it's based on probability, mm-hmm. and the moment he ditches, you know that, uh-oh. You know, like, <laughs> I, I wish they played more with that. That's such a cool idea. Yeah, it is. It is. But I, I love just triggering that, like, you know, saying that he's hard to catch because he can go invisible and because he has a probabilistic understanding of the next few minutes. And then, like, the fact that he ditches tells you, like, Oh, these guys are in danger, which of course, you know, it's a silly scene. So they're not, you never feel that danger. If they had done that with like, and then like immediately Graves <laughs> comes in. It, it, like, it's a comedy. Uh Oh, they're in trouble now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, it, but you're right though. Like it has such dramatic potential to be used um, in a cool way. That being said, I, I do love the idea of the Demi guys just being like, Bye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that
0: brings us to Tina uh, played by Catherine Watterson uh, and it's another character that I, I really love she, she's this very sad almost pitiful person you feel like she's someone who like life just has not gone well for her at all in many years despite her so desperately trying to do the right thing at every turn and usually, like she's like she always she does the right thing, and it always just keeps going badly for her. And there's such a of deep sadness in Watterson's performance, um, and just the way she interacts with Newt, despite like, despite all the trouble he causes, like she never gets angry. She's like the uh, the epitome of I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Like just she's just this air of disappointment. Like she doesn't expe- expect anything more out of people and again just a, a another wonderful like real just kind of a weird person um you know, to, to add on to our crew of outcasts i just others oh, i i really feel for just the, the the sadness that emanates from her and like you, you think, like she seems to be an orphan you're trying to raise a, like it couldn't have been easy taking care of a queenie you know, as a kid she's definitely an interesting person a oh, um, at that like she you know she she got the job she wanted but everything's been screwed up and like we come just like this is a series of humiliations where you know she goes and finally tracks newt down brings you know she, she arrests newt tries to bring him in and it's just this series of like even the house elf in the elevators like you don't belong there like why would you want to go there you got fired and then, like, she's there, she gets thrown out of the, uh, you know, the Makuza headquarters. She goes down to this, like, dingy basement-level desk and immediately has to hide behind the desk as an angry supervisor comes over. Like, it's just this series of humiliations, um, the character has to suffer. Um, and then finally, when, when she, you know, she brings Newt in, as, in what, what should be her moment of triumph, and then just, again, in front of the entire Wizarding, you know, Kong, you know, United Nations or whatever, and just... Everything just keeps going wrong for the poor girl. Yeah, she gets um,
2: executed for her troubles. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. Um, just, and I, I, I just the performance, everything about it. I, I really, really enjoy, um, her as a character, and just like the, they, her and Newt just fit so well together, as just two dorky kids who,
2: yeah. they should get together. I, I love the aspect I like of her the most, and I find most uh in a way relatable not that i've ever experienced something like this but you know you can empathize with what it feels like she was once a respected investigator you know and is now just discredited and discarded and she's looking for her big scoop you know and newt seems to fit the bill because there's some kind of beast terrorizing new york and Lo and behold, here's this immigrant with a case full of beasts, you know? And so she's looking for her, her golden ticket back into the good graces of Makuza. It's, but it's not even just that. Like, the moment she fa- realizes that this
0: is not going to be what be- brings me back in, she's still going to stay on the case and make sure it gets done right. Right. Make sure Jacob gets taken care of, if he doesn't get hurt. Like, even, we, we, like, she, yes, yeah, yeah, she does want to use him as that. that, but even after that doesn't happen, She's just going to be do her
2: police work and make sure it gets done. Yeah, it's not like a Slytherin ambition for ambition's sake kind of thing, you know. It's, yeah, it's more of a, you know, like this is who I am to the core, and I can't stop doing it kind of thing.
0: The thing that got her in trouble was trying to protect an orphan.
2: Yeah, yeah. which is deeply sad. That, that we need to get to credens at some point because that mm-hmm. is. Any thoughts on her, uh, James?
1: So I've always really liked Katherine Waterston. Like she's just like really adorable to me. And uh she pops up here and there. I'm surprised she's not more like well known, but I've always liked her when she shows up. Um I mean, I don't think I have like the love for her characters that y'all do, but I, I like her personality. Um she's a, a fun character to to be with. And um I, I think the only so part of why I don't know if I'm feeling the same way is some of, like, the, the, I guess, the humiliations feel, like, played for laughs. Like, with, like, the ducking behind the desk and stuff. Like, the, it, I I never end up getting to the point with the character and I'm, like, oh, man, I just feel for this poor girl. Because it just kind of feels like, like, oh, nothing's going my way. And we kind of move, I don't know, it it doesn't feel like we dive into, like, that kind of person a lot. So, so I mostly just experience the character as like, oh, I, I really like Katherine Waterston. I think she's fun. She has good chemistry with Newt. Um, but like the that element of her character to me doesn't like really sink in.
2: You're a
1: heartless
0: bastard.
2: Oh, that's James. just because like you're a terrible person. <laughs> no, no, it's, I, I don't know. It's, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I, I get what you're saying. Cause I, I feel is, like we,
1: we spend so much time on the fun adventure stuff that like those elements with the characters they they feel i don't know it doesn't feel like i we dive into that any any of those pieces really we're just like they're they're there and you can think about it but it's not like really involved
2: well we do have during her pensive execution we have the confronting uh what's her name bare bones uh I want to say Susan, but Susan Bones is a different person. Oh, Mary, Lou. Mary Lou. Yep. Okay, yeah. Uh, with, with, the, with that whole subplot, we, we get to see glimpses of that as she's getting ready to be executed and then her opening up to Newt about that situation. Like, at that point, we can recontextualize. And again, this is another one of those, like, it's better with a second viewing things. We can recontextualize all those laughs at her expense to be more pointed than they are, in the moment, and maybe I was—I was never laughing really,
0: um, and like, I—I I, I I, truly—I truly don't get what you're saying. Like for me, like this is being radiated every single second she's on screen. Like whether she's talking just the way she looks at people, watches people, and just the, the look of disappointment she gives Newt when he starts to sneak out of their apartment. Like it's just like, everything about her just radiates this kind of this, this personality, it's in the performance that I, I think
1: part of it is it, it feels, there's not a lot of like real scenes of like extended dialogue where like people just kind of being the, the people they are. And so because of how forward moving it, it feels, um, I, I don't know. There's just, there's a, there's also a sense, and this may just be like a, like just some sort of weird subjective thing, but like, it feels just like, like movie character kind of thing. Like like we we've seen the character before who's like who messed up, we find out, we get the flashback later, and we're like, oh man, like it's it, it it feels like it's like, okay, that's this care like that you you're that kind of character. Because um, it, it I don't know, we just we don't get a lot of like dramatic dialogue between people where it's not just doing some involved in something else. It just it feels like I don't know.
0: i I I could not disagree more. like it's it's there in every frame, like as in, like I, I don't need dialogue about it. It's, it I, I'm seeing it every second she's on screen.
2: Well, also there, there, not just the the scene. She talks. She bears her soul to Newt about it. We see glimpses of it in the execution. We see it uh, again towards the end when she's pleading with Credence. So, and granted, it's not in there as much as it could be.
1: No, it was, it's not. It's not that oh, I need to be told about it. It's just I think part of my issue with, really, with, with the really like just the protagonists in this in general is they they feel like just like movie characters, and so I, it's harder for me to like have have a real emotional response to it because it just I don't know I, I'm not needing her to say like these explicit like. This is what happened. This is blah blah blah. But like, I just have more scenes of just like existing. It's the thing that I think like the the Harry Potter trio really benefited from with that series. Is like partly because of the the classroom setting. There's just more, so many more opportunities for them to be like, oh, these are, I kind of know somebody like that. I kind of know somebody like that. Like I, I get this whole like we're just sitting in the common room talking. Like there's they feel realized. They feel. Like living breathing people, and I don't I couldn't shake the sense of like these are these are the movie characters like this is the, this is the person that she is like this this is like the general template movie character they used for her. This is a general fun uh kind of dopey but lovable sidekick they used for kowalski. this is the gen like it's it felt like there were templates used for all of them, and so it's I just had a hard time like really emotionally responding. To a lot of it
0: it's funny because i love one of the reasons i love these characters is because i i cannot think of anyone else quite like them in movies of this type like they're they're very unusual character types for this kind of movie yeah and, i think
2: it's actually the opposite i think the trio is more templated
0: um yeah it, exactly and, and and i think uh, newt and tina are v- vastly better drawn as characters than the trio is in the movies
2: in the there's, books, you have a
0: lot more. Yeah, not kind of the books, but I think like if I if I were to pick the better character, just the better drawn cinematic characters, I would pick Newt and Tina over any of the tr- of the trio yeah, from I, the films.
1: I definitely would go the reverse. I feel like like I, there's definitely like I w- certainly wouldn't deny that there's like template stuff going on even with that trio, but the thing, a lot of template like they just they come from like a very real like places and so it's like is ron kind of a like oh he's that kind of character yeah but at the same time i know like i've i've had experiences with tons of people who are like if this were a movie you fit seamlessly into that kind of character and so like they can fit a template while still feeling like entirely believable and so a lot of that to me comes from like it's it's not even so much just just the template, but also just it's it, the dialogue and the performance and the way the scenes let them live and breathe. And to me, like the tree of Harry Potter, like they live and breathe they They just feel so fully realized as human beings that in this, it just, to me, it still felt, I don't know, it felt like action adventure movie leads.
0: I, I that's funny. Like, I, I think these characters, the reason I, I, think they, I think they get more much more time to exist and be people here because the Harry Potter films are so rushed. It's just they're, they're going from beat to beat to beat. Aside from like one or two that's movies, weird. we get so little time to exist with I them as characters. I feel like even this film is all about because they were separate from the main plot, it's all about existing with them as. See, people.
1: to me, it's like the some of the Harry Potter films may be rushed but we're rushing from tons of scenes that facilitate that kind of living and breathing, like whether it's classroom scenes or common room scenes or any of like,
0: which we get like four of in the last five movies. I I think part of the, there's just a lot
1: of like sitting or like sitting with each other and talking to each other. And like with, with the whole, like they're technically separated from the main story, but I don't think that removes them from the, from the feeling of like hitting beats because it still feels like, and this is the scene where we, where we get him from the diamond thing. There's the scene with the harumpet. This Is the scene with it. Like we don't really get a lot of scenes that just facilitate them being people. And when we do, it's, it's, it seems like where she's talking about who's that in the picture. And that doesn't really, there's not really a lot to that within this particular movie, I feel like. And so, I don't know it it's they still these still feel like it's harder for my mind to like fill in the space after the movie ends or before the movie started where they're walking around whereas like i mean hermione is like the 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 nerdy know-it-all type like character type but at the same time i graduated with like three hermione's you know like i i know exactly like it i my mind because of and i was even critical of some elements of watson's performance but even still like and again, I'm also, I've got eight movies there, so it's not at all a fair comparison.
2: No, but I, th- I think also one thing we're failing to compare enough is that the trio in Harry Potter, for a very long time, are children. And children have with them an earnestness and a directness and a lack of subtlety that a lot of times adult and and adult characters do not have, and they you know they're wearing their emotions on their sleeves a lot of the time, their conflicts tend to be a little more explosive and not as much internal um, and so it's it can and of course all of us are children at some point, not all of us are are you know discredited uh investigators not all of us are bakers who are wasted in a factory not all of us are um zoologists that don't get along with humans you know like yeah it's just such an odd like oddball specificity to these characters and, and i think honestly and, and i may actually accidentally facilitate transli- transition here um i think of all of them the most immediately successful to me is actually queenie interesting because to me like the idea so first off i think there's like criticism i have of of the mechanics of legitimacy here where like previously we are told by rowling through severus snape that legitimacy isn't like reading a mind like a book it's it's a it's a lot more mysterious and inscrutable than that and yet immediately Queenie is very much the typical mind-ready trope but in so doing like they give us a character that has been dealing with this for a very long time it's often completely involuntary and it's actually more intrusive than helpful and she uses it quite a bit in the movie to get her way and stuff but in a way it's like it it Makes people feel superficial, it makes people feel samey and gross, and you know, like I find that immediately compelling. Um, yeah, it's funny. Like,
0: I, 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 for me, she's probably the least well realized, at least as far as like me trying to get in on her. Like, first viewing, I really did not know what to make of her. I think, like, my way of figuring out her character is that. She's had, like, because she, she's kind of a weirdo. Like, I, I, she just acts very strange, um, almost like a child. There's something very childish about her. Um, so, like, my head can read on her is that, you know, growing up with this ability, she never really had to learn to properly interact with other humans. Like, and like, it, like it, it kind of, I don't know if damage is the right word, but it changed just the way she mentally developed because she
2: had this shortcut that no one else had it immediately made her cynical prematurely i I, I don't don't think she's cynical i think she is and she's got a very superficial persona Hmm. that is trying to mask that and i think that the reason she is so attracted to jacob is because he is just earnest and what's in his mind is (laughs) is what's coming out you know like it's there's no like uh, there's no like major secrecy. And what's there tends to be innocent, you know, whereas everyone else around her is a lying, dirty, cheating scoundrel. And I imagine that that can be, yeah, quite dramatic. I like the conversation where they're having the
0: essentially the one-sided conversation where she's having both sides of it while you know talking to reading his reading his responses. Uh, yeah. that was cute um that that that, 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 that is very interesting to fact that like. There is no guile in Jacob. It's like what what you know what's in his head is what he would would have said the next second, yeah, but I, I, like as far as like why is he so odd I my read is that, like you know having this sh- this essential shortcut things that a thing that takes normal humans decades you know to figure out how to inter- you know, how to figure out what's going on in someone else's head it's it was a shortcut essentially circumvented a lot of maturing and gro- human development that happens as far as you know, interpersonal relations I don't even know if any of that was intended but that's kind of my read on her and how I kind of made sense of the kind of odd duck that she is
2: what about you James?
1: no so I actually kind of like her as a character the, the thing I liked her introduction where she's like the thi- she's she's just become so familiar with like the gut reaction of men that she's like not immediately hating was <laughs> like, listen, most guys think just don't worry about it and move moves on and then like uh it was a, it was an interesting way to introduce her like with that um I do wish that like they could have done I feel like that the idea of somebody who can read your thoughts, who is also like kind of that that magnetic kind of beautiful her son or like all the guys want to get to know her i feel like there's something really interesting that could be done with that where it's like you've got like these there's the tempt, like there's the the desire to want to get close to her but you risk her knowing everything that you like it's there's something to do there but i i feel like there's it's not used a lot beyond some like plot mechanics stuff um but i feel like it there's potential to do character stuff with that. Like, and not only what, uh, how other people would think having to interact with her, where it's like, I want to be around her cause she's beautiful and funny, but I also, I don't want her to know my thoughts. I don't want her, And so like you can think about how she affects the people around her, but you can also think about how the decisions people around her make in terms of whether they engage with her or not makes her feel. And so like you could have like this, Really focus hone in on like the sense of isolation that she might feel, you know, because people are scared to get to know her because they have to work, and she just kind of knows their thoughts. And
0: well, I don't think they know. You get the sense that that her co-workers don't know about it. I think it's kept secret.
2: Okay. Yeah, I I think she keeps it secret because it freaks people out. Like I think this is someone who has. You know, and may, I may be reading too much into it, but every thought that we have on a day where we're not feeling good or every impure idea that enters our mind is open to her, right? So she has, pro- and she was an orphan too. So she was probably surrounded by awful people from a very young age had none of the edifice of society in front of people for her and so i imagine it's very easy to feel isolated and completely separated from everything else and i see this like charming charismatic you know like sexy woman persona as kind of a mask for the fact that she is she sees everything about people is laid bare to her and that's not always pleasant um i think part of the reason she gravitates towards this this new sudden uh you know of course she's known tina her whole life but you know seeing newt and jacob it's like oh these guys are pretty darn innocent nice guys you know (laughs) like um they're weird and they have their own darknesses about them and i think. The, the moment where she's essentially in, interrogating uh, Newt about Lidl Estrange is kind of like a looking after her sister because she is undoubtedly aware of the attraction immediately between Tina and Newt and is probing him for, you know, like, is, is, this, is this guy appropriate for my sister kind of thing? It's a good point, and, and I I think that when she's exploring this the Lestrange thing, she's like, "Is this going to be a problem?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> I like how she uses it for instant blackmail <laughs>
0: later on in the escape attempt. Yeah. Or we really, like she, she senses her sister's pain um,
2: from acro- across the across the building. Yeah, and she takes charge in the escape too. When she's just like, "Hey, get in the case," hey, you know, like it. I also love little detail that I loved is that they're trying to break into Graves' office and trying to <laughs> every spell in the book, and Jacob just kicks the door in. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you have a muggle along every now and then.
0: <laughs> yes. Or just, uh, the their relationship is so adorable and sweet. Like, sure, it happens really, it's really rushed, but also she knows exactly what's what, who he is the second she meets him. Instant familiarity. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and he's doped up, and she he thinks she's an angel. So they're <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Are you an angel?
1: I live off the moons of
0: Diego. Nice. I think. <laughs> uh, and they, they go to like the speakeasy. Um, I I love Google Water. <laughs> like, like he's leaned up against oh! the bar, all cool. Like, are all muggles like you? Nope. There's nothing like. There's no one like me. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. it's, it's, it's Vogler's Fogler's delivery of the of the giggler. Or later on as every like chaos is you know, chaos is breaking out, he slugs uh Narlac and just takes a swig <laughs> he looks all cool like this Nick Noir hero. Uh
2: just great. Um, very very sorry about this, Mr. Narla. <laughs> just First off, I just love that the name, the name giggle water is the most appropriate term for alcohol I've ever heard. Well, it's literal here.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah going over to MACUSA, Um we, we've touched on this. I, I, we, we did talk about it. It does feel a little small. I, I wish this was more like either city or state authorities rather than national wizarding authority. I think it also would have kind of... Played on the the segmentation of American government. If it was more localized, you could have like, oh, DC is sending in their wizards to try and control the situation, and there's there's conflicts between the jurisdictions and all that. Um, you know, make make you know, differentiate a little bit from.
2: It's just American Ministry of Magic. Yeah, the Ministry of Magic is extremely centralized. It it would have been nice if if uh, the American equivalent was way more disparate.
0: But then again. They're a almost fascist organization, so
2: <laughs> centralized makes sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a different. They're obviously not. And 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 maybe I'm being overly critical of J.K. Rowling here, but it's it's like a European's conception of what American government is sort <laughs> of like, and very it, boring names like Makuza, Nomad. Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, Nomad is the worst sin against America in this <laughs> entire movie. Like. I, I I I struggle to think of a single American nineteen twenties or otherwise that would go. Oh, nomad sounds like a great name for non-magical people. Like, they I think we're sorry. boring. I'm uh, insulted. I, I'm uh, insulted by nomad. That's muggle is a much better term, and it's it's insultingly bad in comparison. I mean, it does make sense that it would be a bit more
0: utilitarian. Like British yes. language is far more adorable, colloquial, I guess. You know? Yes,
2: but. Come on. <laughs> Nomads is is way too clinical. <laughs> yeah, but I, I I but I like just the
0: atmosphere and the tone. There's little touches like the the, the no, we're seeing that like house elves who seem to be freed, and one of them is carrying a wand, but also they're taking the 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 role they're taking in society, like one's like shining wands and the other one's like like the elevator boy. So it, it's
2: like it's a bartender. Like, no, the bartender was a goblin,
0: the, though, wasn't he? He was. He was a house elf. Oh, <laughs> like, ha- have you ever seen a house elf before? that's right. That's right. That's I love that's... house elves. My a house elf. Uh, <laughs> like, they're they're so like it seems like they're freed. On like, like in England, they're st- they've been freed from their enslavement, but also they're still kind of taking a, l- a lower place in like the cultural.
2: Like they can't help but do some kind of serving, but that's well
0: either that or they're captive there. That that's a good point as well. It could be like part of their nature or it could be.
2: That's Shiny. a bit of an ongoing debate in, mm-hmm. in, the, in the case of house elves.
0: Yeah. And I love that. It's not even like I think it, it would have been more cringy if they had like called attention to it. But it's just it is things we see walking past, like just walking through the ministry that like, like he has a wand. We know that in England their slaves are not allowed to have wands. What does that mean for the culture at large? Like there's a lot, there's a lot of cool world building. Again, like just the sense of fear, the fact that whether or not it's correct protocol <clears throat> graves is an execution. Um, also in the fact that they have this whole room decked out. And I, I want to talk about that sequence. The, the death, the death cell. It's one of those things that I, I, I can't believe made it into like a mainstream film. It's so just
2: bizarre and dark. It smacks of lethal injection, but magical equivalent. Like, yeah and hey but, we're gonna make this nice and comfortable for you while we horrifically end your life you know like <laughs> <laughs> but even more so
0: and, oh just the way that um tina says yo please don't do this bernadette it's like good lord they're, they're on first name basis yeah but you can you, you can hear like she's already given up in her voice and the, the executioner nurses are so creepy it's And they have these tiny smiles and they play the characters like these kind, caring nurses that are trying to help you.
2: But they're sociopathic. You've got to be a messed up
1: person to take those (laughs) jobs.
2: Don't that look good? Yes.
0: And but also just the nature of the execution is that you know they take these memories, these happy memories out of you, so that you can be in this kind of drugged Happy euphoric state as you die. It's like a personalized execution, as quote unquote a kindness that has them willingly walk to their death. It's, it's it's like both. It's like it's this weird attempt to be humane that is also horribly violating. And I could be reaching, but it it almost felt like it's like the, the like just the kind of weird humanistic progressivism that was happening in the twenties that led to things like eugenics where like you have these authorities like they're doing things like sterilizing people or like just causing them damage with a smile on their face, telling them it's for their own good and for the good of humanity. For the, the greater good. Yeah. For the greater good. Um that kind <laughs> of twisted humanistic progressivism that was rampant in the the 19th century, early nineteenth century. Um no is it the nineteenth century early twentieth yeah. century. That one, yeah, um, 1900s. That's
2: it's weird. Conf- That's not way confusing it works. at all. Uh,
0: <laughs> but like that, I, I could be reading that into it, but it felt like it was. That is something that would come out of that mindset of, "It's for your own good, dear." Now get in and die. <laughs> it's I, just the way the the potion just slowly raises up around, just just to, in almost like it's sentient to yeah. swallow you. Ugh. I just I I love that we seen just so freaking dark and existentially horrifying it just kind of happens here
1: yeah i mean it's there's definitely creepiness i wish i wish that it was like lit differently like i wish it was either like full-on horror like with the lighting or the weird kind of like weird fluorescent thing in the doll room and the half blood or not the uh, deathly house part one like, just this weird, harsh, overly, like, like late-night ER clinic kind of. The lights are blaring down, like, from overhead. Um,
0: I think that's more, more what they were going for, kind of a clinical hospital look.
2: Yeah, I think the room was a little too white to accomplish that 100% effectively. But I, I, I get James's critique. I probably don't feel it as heavily as he does.
0: So moving on to kind of this, the, the core, I guess it, it feels a little weird to call it the core central plot because most of the movie is taken up with other characters. But I guess the the, the action driven plot would be Graves using Credence to try and find who is this child Obscurial who is, you know, who is uh, wreaking havoc so that he can, you, you can manipulate them and use their power. And we have Percival Graves played by the wonderful Colin Farrell. What do we think, James? You're a fanboy.
1: A fanboy, but you always lose points when you don't let him use his Irish accent. That is a that is a uh,
0: it's it slipped through a couple times when he was giving his big speech at the end. I was like, "There, there, you are." I see you, Colin. Um,
1: How do you hire Colin Farrell in a I, Wizarding World movie and make him American?
0: I love his accent, though. I love his kind of brusque New York accent with a bit of you know. British biting off you know the consonants.
2: Well, you know, it's um, funny. It is the 1920s. You could have gotten away with an Irish immigrant, you know. You could. But I, I think the New York
0: accent <laughs> gives him a, a kind of brusqueness that, yeah. that works for the character. I, I do wish we got a bit more explaining who... who Like, he's impersonating this guy, Personal Graves. I, I wish we kind of got a bit more as far as who is that guy, who that guy was pre-being taken over. That's a... I Colin Farrell is just so compelling to watch as he just walks around in this incredible overcoat and scarf combo and i just he's doing dastardly
2: things i don't know what they are but i love watching him do them I hate to keep interjecting this kind of thing a little bit of Pottermore more knowledge mm. uh, early on in the founding of Makuza again i mentioned that like a lot of criminals from europe fled to the fled to the americas and the first or organization in America had like, I think, I think 13 um, wizards that had volunteered, and one of them was a Graves. Um, and so he's kind of like a, a not quite like George Washington level figure, but more like a Andrew Jackson figure. Ironically, one of the uh, one of the early American orers on that list is a Mr. Abraham Potter. As a descendant of the Potters, as an American, or, <laughs> and
0: I, I like how he's kind of framed as like a semi-sympathetic figure for the first half of the film, um, it slowly you slowly kind of see the cracks happening, and I, just the way that line of you know, so it's useless, um, kind of reveals him, and the 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 way he manipulates credence with just like these small acts of kindness and touch and. The promise of belonging. Like just, Grindelwald is a manipulator. That like that is what he is to his core. He you know he uses people. So he you know, used Dumbledore previously. Like that's what he does. Um, and uh, his ultimate thing is power. The moment he, re- he he the moment he no longer needs credence, he just casts him aside. And there's like a part- a particular venom in how he does it, which I think is due to him thinking he's a squib. Like he, like as someone who yeah. uh, places ultimate value in power
2: in, in the way he says, uh, credence, I believe I owe you an apology. Yeah. Like, and then at the moment he thinks, Oh wait, it's
0: actually credence. I care about you now. Like I actually, yeah, I can see you again.
2: Yeah. It's, it's creepy. I think also like in the trailer, we had the, uh, you know, you were expelled from Hogwarts. So uh, one of your professors vouched for you, Albus Dumbledore. Like, coming from graves, that would feel like, oh, we're just trying to make a Harry Potter reference. But the fact that it's Grendelwald...
0: What makes Dumbledore so fond of you?
2: Yes, it's like, okay, okay, this is so much better knowing that it's Grendelwald asking that question rather than just a random American law enforcement wizard asking about a British teacher. You know, I, like,
0: The way he, his awe of power... Like with like, he's looking at Credence. There's like tears in his eyes. Like this is almost like his god. Like the the, the this incredible, the most power he's ever seen. It's beautiful. And the desire for it, and then, like just the the madness towards the end. Like there's a a true insanity in his eyes. Like when he has when he has like a Newt on the ground in the train tracks, and he's just throwing spell after spell at him. Or after he's been after he's been unmasked and he's going at Mak Macu- and he's going at it with Makuza, and he's just walking forward, deflecting all the blows, sending a call back. but he's like zeroed in on the minister uh, or the uh, madam president, and he's like there's this wild predator looking in his eyes as he's just wading through this this avalanche of uh, spells going
2: straight forward. It's like really scary and and the fact that a little slight thematic tie. The thing that finally brings him down is a beast. The swooping evil is mm-hmm. what gives Newt the edge over Grendelwald and allows him to capture him. And that's like, that's such a win for Newt. Like you guys yeah. have undervalued these little creatures, and
0: and, and a big uh, praise for the for the, Rowling's writing. Like he gives his speech. You know, I ask you, Madam President. I ask all of you: Who does this law protect? Us or them? I refuse to bow down any longer. And it has the exact same cadence as Johnny Depp's speech from Crimes of Grindelwald. Like
2: that, which is James, I can't wait for you to see that scene. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I love that
0: a different actor, different movie. She still has she has the voice of the character.
2: Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. It's and it's then good. Johnny De- Johnny Depp coming on to be Johnny Depp.
1: I would love that if one of the characters was just oh, it's Johnny
0: Depp. <laughs> I, I kind of I I feel sorry for you, James, that you couldn't have lived through that in 2016 because 2016 was a very different time for people's feelings on him as an as an actor, like not as a person. Like we had a whole crazy complicated affair with him as a as a human being, but like as an actor in 2016, people were so done with him. Um, just after a series of you know bad pirates sequels, bad Tim Burton films, like they were kind of just done with a shtick. And I do, I even myself, I remember being like, oh, wait, Johnny Depp, like what? What's what's with his hair and his what is what is what is this going on?" Like you had Colin Farrell. Like since then, I've repented of that, and I, I absolutely love what he did in the, in the sequel, but it was a weird it was a weird choice in twenty sixteen, and also. That coming just months after Amber heard, you know, launched her allegations, so like people were not feeling like they, they weren't feeling him as an actor and weren't feeling him as a person to so like this, a lot, a lot of hate towards this movie came from that choice, which is weird
2: since he's in it for like five seconds. Pretty important seconds though. Yes. Yes. Pretty important. Seconds.
0: But he didn't mention credence. So he's definitely worth mentioning. What are, you, what are your thoughts on him, Ryan?
2: Yeah. I, Ezra Miller is, you know, uh, uh, all respect to the guy. He's kind of a... He He looks like an orphan sometimes. <laughs> like, the guy just looks kind of like he's had a rough go of it. He you looks, know? He's one of those
1: sickly Victorian-looking actors.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And I think... Um, uh, here, he's just kind of a heartbreaking kid. You know, like... That if you... Watch it again, knowing that he is the Obscurial suppressing his magic. Like, he he looks miserable the whole time anyway, but it adds a a whole other heartbreaking element that, you know, he is a very, very abused child. It's unclear how much Mary Lou knows that he's a wizard or not. I think she would, you know, I I don't know because uh, we have, Tina saying that she she beats him the worst
0: of Mm -hmm. anyone
2: so it feels like she has an idea but isn't you know totally sold that he's he's a wizard and and then like he is just he doesn't just get it from Mary Lou he gets it from uh Shaw you know saying like you know get out of here freak which is what's funny about that is it's a it's he's aiming it at what he thinks is a normal person who believes witches and wizards walk among us but he's actually aiming it at a wizard so it's and an it's, orphan an abused child yes a lonely
0: like, broken person
2: it's like yeah. everything like i it's it's a little hammy in a sense because like if you were going to design a person that would be an obscurial like this is the guy <laughs> you know I, I do think he
0: he overplays it a little yeah. bit like with a hunch and every like you can loosen up a tad um yeah. but it's definitely effective
1: yeah so i there's elements of like the the design that i like like there's there's a creepiness to the look the my favorite moment and this sounds super dark uh my favorite moment with that whole second salem thing was Whenever he takes off his belt and gives it to her, and they walk up the stairs, and then we just see the little girl, and you're like, oh, that, like, honestly, to me, in the whole movie, that was like, in terms of it's the movie's darkness, that was the most effective. I'm like, oh it's it's a it's so routine. Like,
2: he's like, here, let's get yeah, this like, over
1: That he takes it off himself, hands it to her, and they just walk up the stairs. The little girl sees it; she knows what's going on. Everybody knows what's going on. Not a word spoken. That, that whole scene, I was like, that's pretty pretty messed up. Um, I'm kind of, like, I do think that there is a little bit of leaning into it too much with, like, with the hunch and with the, Yeah, I don't know. I would have liked to have seen him try to interact with other people there. Like, let him kind of be an alive person a little bit. Almost all of his his scenes in the movie is just kind of him being this, like, hunched over, defeated kid. Yeah. Um, but it is like I mean in a way Ezra Miller just like looks like I mean it's kind of what you were saying Ryan like he just looks like yeah that's how you should make him look in this movie it's he just it works <laughs> all
0: right so uh, James it looks like you have to head out pretty soon um so since you won't be here for the closing why don't you uh, give us your star rating for this film and the your ranking for the series so far okay so and some and some final thoughts gotcha.
1: so my final thoughts are um I don't know, I, I think just first blush. The, the script was just kind of messy. Like with it, there's a lot of different pieces just kind of thrown on to a singular thing and it didn't feel super cohesive. Um, and like, I I didn't feel the same attachment towards the characters that y'all do. And again, like rewatches may change that, but I don't know, like visually it, it, it didn't really wow me, not even just the VFX, but like we said, like the, the lighting of the movie, the, the action it's, I don't know. It, I, I really wanted to really like this one a lot but I, I i'm fairly neutral on it and so i guess to to reflect that neutralness i go two and a half
2: uh um, breaking my heart i'm sorry i just, you can't go two and a half on a movie with swooping evil in it
1: <laughs> uh swooping that's the that's the potion thing
2: that's the uh the the oh that's the, oh yeah, that 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 the guy. so there's
1: elements of swooping evil that i do like i love that grin he gives like whenever he's like oh, probably shouldn't be like i don't know.
2: <laughs> leave his brain <laughs> um
1: but there's also moments with swooping evil where i'm like i feel like i just watched a 2013 movie made in the heat of like the 3d craze where it's like it's in that scene where it launched at the screen i was like i feel like i should have had my glasses on uh, but uh, but I, I, again, I want to like it, and I will rewatch this. I'm pro- I'm going to rewatch it before we do our Crimes of uh, Grindelwald episode, and so maybe I'll come back with a uh, an updated um, ranking or, or rating and ranking. Um, but right now, I don't. Know, it's it, it's at the bottom for me
2: currently. Which may change, may or may not change after you've experienced Crimes of Grindelwald as well. I, it's it's hard to say. And because I, spoiler alert, I think Crimes of Grindelwald is not as strong as this one. Um, yeah. Which probably terrifies you, James.
1: Yeah, because um, I hear it's also <laughs> a little bit more ambitious and like weird, which might smooth
2: over things that, for me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it, it is weird. It is. I, I I wanna prime your expectations a bit though, because I I think this is the stronger film uh overall. Don't uh, go I, in for the plot. <laughs> Just like you won't the, be the, happy. The the problem of novel but movie is dialed <laughs> to eleven I, in crimes grimwalds. Looking so, forward
1: to it. Um, All right, well, I'm gonna head out. <laughs> Alright. Carry on without me being a yeah. sourpuss. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'll see y'all later.
2: No, it's okay. It wasn't that bad, actually. Well, thank but... goodness for that. <laughs> 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 now we can really talk. Um,
0: I, think I think his anyway...
2: critiques are mostly valid. I just think he weighs them heavier than I do.
0: But I... Uh, yeah, Yeah, for someone who doesn't connect to the characters, but as someone who connects so deeply to these people, it's almost like, how can you not love them?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel the
0: same way. Like I, I'm not gonna spend too much <laughs> breath trying to defend like the plot construction
2: or structuring and all that. I think um, we all agree that that the structure, the pacing, and the plot are just weird. <laughs> yes, <laughs> unorthodox to say the <laughs> least. You know, they're they're, they're much like newt. <laughs> they're a little awkward. Yeah. Uh, uh, back to the obscurus. Uh, how how did
0: you feel about the other uh, red herring of the little sister? I thought it was pretty well handled. Generally, I don't like red herrings that films lean heavily into, but I thought they played pretty fair with this one.
2: Yeah, I feel like it's funny because I think both Grindelwald and – and uh, what's her name? Charity? Is, is, is Mary it charity? or the, uh, the, 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 the little girl that's little girl. constantly doing the creepy I, nursery rhyme. I don't remember. She's just a creepy girl for me. <laughs> so very, I, very, I, very, I, very creepy girl. I, I think it's Charity. But like, I feel like this is the inverse of our Goblet of Fire discussion where like with Goblet of Fire, it's like we had Karkaroff as the red herring and that was not fair. Like the whole scene where he's like closing the door and going into the Goblet of Fire looking both ways. And that that scene is never justified, not even once, you know. But whereas with uh, with, uh, Charity, you're getting all these like, again, extensively creepy nursery rhymes which would have been creepy in any context but are doubly creepy since like these witches she's talking about are people and not just like a fictional concept you know like (laughs) um but you have that and and you do get the feeling that maybe she's overcompensating that she her way of protecting herself is by pretending to be incredibly fanatical and you buy that as a as a possible reason you know that she's acting the way she is and that secretly she's suppressing what's magic about her but at the same time you like yeah you come from a large family there's always a snitch there's
0: you know like there's always the one
2: that's like playing a little
0: too close is she a witch it's like, unclear. I think there's, a possibi- there's a distinct possibility that she is, and that yeah. Credence is legitimately trying to protect her from his step,
2: his you know, adopted mother's wrath. Yeah, it's, it's, it's unclear, but I think it plays either way, is what I'm getting at. Like, if if she's not, then I totally buy that she's just being incredibly fanatical to avoid. The wrath of her abusive uh caretaker, and then if she is the the same act works like it's either way you know the the whole front is effective to me, and it it doesn't read like Karkaroff twiddling his fingers and twirling his mustache as he goes to not do anything shady you know <laughs> the, the, the final reveal I think is is really good
0: um yeah after just Grindelwald just destroys him. And then we go to the girl and she's terrified of something else. And the walls just tear
2: away and Credence is standing there. And I stand by what I said earlier, like that line where he's like, Credence, I think I owe you an apology. Like you would think like something that just tore apart the building that way would be a little more upsetting to him. Or at least concerning for his personal safety, but he's just so like, oh, there it is, <laughs> you know. Like, I I love that aspect of it, and then I do think uh, we get back to criticisms of black wispy smoke is cool effect, but at the same time a little. I li- I really like the obscurial effect, Obscurous effect, or whatever, whatever you call it. Um,
0: it's. The weird, just the way it it moves. You have like the 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 the, the uh, like burning coals on the inside, and I really like when it, like it'll it rapidly expand and contract. Um, the way it kind of sits on the ceiling of the subway, like really still and kind of folding in on itself. Um, I, I thought it was really cool.
2: I I like the the folding in on itself is a good way to describe it because it does feel very insular. Like it feels like, both gaseous and liquid. Yeah, like, uh, it, and and I think if you're gonna design a, a magical parasite, that, that's that's kind of what it's gonna look like. I, I mean, it's 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 ethereal in a way that like, and when when I say I criticize the the black wispy smoky kind of idea, it's like. It's not so much in the design. I think it's way more appropriate with the obs- Obscurus than it is with the Death Eaters. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I also like the design overall. I, I, particularly, I, I, it's not even Credence. I love the one we see in the suitcase because it's not like it's sitting there still it's not like a raging monster that's tearing through the city. Oh and, yeah. It's so it's really eerie in the sound design. Yeah. And it's like, you're looking at it going, I don't want to touch it. You know, <laughs> like, I, I want to stand as on the other side of the room of this thing. You know, like I, I, I like that because we get a chance to look at it and the pity that, that like what it represents. It's honestly quite emotional thinking about it. Like, That is something that killed a child, you know. Like, but also all that's left of them. Yeah, it's like you—you feel immense pity and and pain from it just being there, you know. Like, it's it's the it's the loss of a child and the repression of a person made manifest in front of you, you know. And that's that's one thing that Rowling has always been good at. It's like it's like the Dementor of fantastic beast in a way you know like Mm -hmm. it's a personification of of a feeling and that is something that Rowling does better than anyone else i think yeah and I, i it's like
0: how visualize rage um and uh, the way it it changes colors and the just this, the movement changes as his like as he's either calming down or getting more and more angry, I think it's all really well done. And it's just the the action sequence where it's just Newt and Graves jumping around and apparating inside the um, subway, like you're in an enclosed space with an unstoppable force. All you can do is just stay one step ahead of it. And they're just jumping and apparating, trying to stay away from this just
2: raging force that was a really that we cool previously concept. saw rip away a building <laughs> it's like yeah and and at the same time like one thing that like uh sticks out to me is in that final like subway confrontation where they're all pleading with with credence like obviously grendelwald is is manipulating but at the same time you hear newton tina and you're like "Ooh, guys are 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 you sure you're saying this right like does he feel like everyone is just using and manipulating him you know like mm-hmm. it, it's i i I think it's tied to what we feel for credence, which again, I think we all agree is is, is laying it on a little thick but uh at the same time we we've all been around somebody that has something of great value and a bunch of people attempting to use that and so like grendelwald is obvious to us and maybe into credence now though not credence for most of the movie obviously trying to use him but the way tina and newt approach it obviously more compassionate but at the same time it's like you could Feel credence being like I fell for that before, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, ah, yeah, I, what do you do? It's a terrifying abuse situation. And I love like the various people like Makusa. They just
0: want to kill him. um Graves wants to use him, and Newt is actually here to try and protect the person inside of that. You know, the mass of destructive rage, and it, it's like it's not like Makuza's entirely in the wrong here. <laughs> He's, he is destroying the city. And risk, and exposing their world, like if it, if it weren't for the Thunderbird, the entire you know, the entire course of Wizarding history would have changed in probably very much for the worst right then and there. Which the Thunderbird is a bit of a do do sex
2: machina, but but
0: the music is pretty, so I like it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like that. It, Newt, as I said before, Newt is brought into this climax because you know Credence is another you know, fantastic beast in need of his protection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know It's character rather than just plot, bring him into this fight. Right. It's all pretty good. Uh, I, I And the sequence, like the sequence of the rain falling and the wizards rebuilding the city, like with, I think with a better CGI it would have been one of Yates more impressive sequences. The music is really gorgeous. The, the, just the, the, the motif of the rain washing away all, all that's bad to quote, uh, Le Miserep is really powerful, but goodness, the CGI is not very good.
2: Yeah, and it feels like like it's the same wizard in a fedora at every situation. It's like because that's all Americans wear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we 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 always see his back too, so it's like you know, mix it up a bit. Like maybe just use some of the extras we saw at Makuza that were there. You know, like it doesn't have to be the same guy every time. Like that said.
0: What, Wizards walking through the rain repairing things in fedoras and long coats is pretty freaking cool.
2: Sure. So, Absolutely. I get look, why
0: you <laughs> you,
2: you got a I, I, I'm, good image, overuse it. Yeah. <laughs> look, I, I'm not against wizards and fedoras. I mean, at least two of the guys could have been wizards in fedoras, but it doesn't have <laughs> to be all of them. <laughs> you know? oh, I love them.
0: Um, one one really overworked <laughs> user worker. It's just one guy. He's it's operating like, around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the final, the goodbye. Yeah. Oh, uh, hey, where's that muggle? <laughs> Jacob steps out of behind, um, and I love that he just accepts. He's like, this was never supposed to happen. I was never supposed to be here. It's the it was the best day of my life, and you know, always, always going to be grateful. But this is this is what this is what has to happen. Um, he's such a good soul, uh, and, and yeah. but the line that kills me is like. Everybody knows Newt just kept me around because, wait, hey, Newt, why did you keep me around? Because I like you. Because you're my friend. Oh. (laughs) oh, Dan Fogler, he's so freaking funny, but when he just turns on the heart, he is incredible.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I'm not going to be there for it, so I have to call ahead and shout out to it. It's like, this this particular scene and the the you're crazy scene in crimes of Mm grendelwald also not another war (laughs) yeah do that line delivery yeah We, we spend so much time with him being the lovable goofball that when it's that sincerely heartfelt it's it's crushing and uh, speak, speaking of cgi one one good redeeming bit of cgi there is the like little invisible wand umbrella what a cool concept i love that so much like the the magic like y- you can see the shape of an umbrella but it's not actually there you know it's like oh that's so cool and then we hold on him as
0: the rain stops the wizards appear and he's just kind of standing like slightly bemused in the street and like and just kind of walks away it's uh, it's Really good filmmaking
2: yeah and and of course, I love the the bakery with the niffler treats and the demi guys, you know it's like, ah, oh, it's so good, the dopey
0: grin he gives at Queenie when he remembers, oh, yeah, and uh, then uh when, when um you have a uh, new entity to goodbye, it's like, well, it's been hasn't it? was <laughs> just they're like these two dorky kids are so perfect for each other. And the that the, uh, do you mind if I deliver my manuscript in person? <laughs> the way he comes back into frame.
2: Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. It's like just kiss already, you two. Yeah, really. Also, casting for the salamander eyes thing is mm-hmm. just. <laughs> that's very... Yeah, I, I if someone were to criticize
0: these arcs, like the characters and the friendships, all that being rushed, like if it were just on paper, I might agree. But I think these these actors have such good chemistry together. Uh-huh. And they just like, it's so, it's so intuitive. Like yes, these people belong together. They're friends, obviously. How dare you doubt it? And 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 Newt giving him the Akame
2: egg cells for collateral. Oh my gosh, you you're wasting the a, a canning factory. Uh, yeah, it's such a great moment. It's like, oh, what a sweet thing to do. It's like,
0: ah. like as from like a, a character arc perspective, like he dis in, in discovering these outcasts he found a way back into humanity. Yeah. And like, he's actually a full, complete person again. Yeah. Um, like that's why I love this movie. Like it, it, yeah, it's the plotting's weird. And you could say like, it didn't have to, you know, did it have to be about Grindelwald, all that fine. But there's, it's impossible to deny the amount of heart and depth that Rowling is putting into these characters, whether or not, you know, it she there's enough on screen for every single person to latch onto it like the moment i think once you start looking deeper there's just layers and layers of characterization and just a a single line here speaks so many much volumes about who that person was um and 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 just how they feel about the world and and their place in it and how they interact with each other Like uh,
2: it's there's so much heart here yeah i i think uh I, I love all four of these characters, and I I I love them in Crimes of Grendelwald too, which uh, that is a movie.
0: <laughs> I I like lo- I like that movie so much, but it's one of the few that I like that much,
2: but also don't <laughs> resent too much people who don't. No, it's it's like one of those ones. Like it's like if you're in a room full of people and they're all talking about how much they hate it, rather than be like, "Well, it's got redeeming qualities." You'd rather be. Yeah, <laughs> look at the teleporting dragon kitty. Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> but we're not talking about time crimes of Grendelwald, are we?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good place to kind of wrap up. Um, moving into our, our discussion on this uh score, here we have an, yet an, another composer with uh, James Newman Howard. What are your thoughts on his
2: music? I, I really like it. I like the new Fantastic Beast theme. Um, obviously, it's no Hedwig's theme. I mean, <laughs> dude, when you're Competing with like an iconic John Williams, firing on all cylinders, bit you're never gonna really measure up. But as far as it goes, like I really like the Fantastic Beast theme. I I I generally like the music in this movie. You know, I want to say it's in the the scene with the swooping evil, three uh, D movie effect. But <laughs> Hedwig's theme is in here. It does um, show up a couple times yeah and, like, and, like, and not just the opening credits right right and uh it's uh it's way more disguised because i remember walking out of the theater feeling i like it was never there um i i used to, I, I listened to the score like two days ago i think it shows up three times including the, including
0: the open credits um just very briefly I'm yeah yeah though. It's,
2: it's never overstated like but I, I will say like the trailer music for this was just I don't remember Not what it
0: enough. was. Ah, should, now I gotta watch the trailers again. Yeah, you should. Yeah, I, I've come to be a huge fan of James Newton Howard. I think like uh, his his M. Night Shyamalan scores was kind of the gateway drug. Uh, but I think he in, he has a way how the way he, he works themes into his film, like he'll just he'll touch on the themes and then keep keep putting them throughout the film lightly. And then at the climax, he'll put, like, all the themes together and with these really swelling pieces. And it feels so satisfying because, oh, I've heard that music there, I've heard that music there, and it's all coming together. Like, it really
2: helps the drama of the film in that way. Like, uh, a good example would be, like, that little uh, playful jaunty, like, 1920s theme we get for Jacob early on in the film. And then it resumes after he's been... Washed with the rain, and it like yeah. comes back to mundanity for him. Like that's a neat. Let me hear in the shop. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, it's like a, it's it's, almost a representation of his his day to day life and his character, and then like once the magic is squeezed out of it, it's back to the you know. Yeah, and I think that the great
0: thing about this is it feels. I'd say it feels the most like the wizarding world. I'd say if any of the composers besides John Williams um, like it and, but also it doesn't sound like John Williams. I, th- I think it's a really right. good feat in that regards. It it instantly fits into this world. Um, and I think the, the new theme is very, very, you know, Harry Potter, but also it doesn't have the child like wonder. There's more urgency and danger to it.
2: Yeah. Like a lot. Yeah.
0: Um, and I, I just, I, I think the way he just scores scenes it feels like listening to the soundtrack. It feels like he's telling a story. There's a really effective rise and fall and movement of where like, where sometimes you listen to the score. And like I have no idea what was happening on screen. And here, like, even if you haven't seen the movie, it feels like you're making, you're telling a story in your own head through his music, which is my favorite kind of film score. Cause you can listen to like, if you know the story you're seeing, you're watching the movie, but if you don't, you're still, you're having an emotional, you're still feeling the movie journey. Yeah. You know, very very good score. I'm not going to get into you know, individual tracks right now. Um, so moving on to our star rating and our ranking for the series till now. And actually, I'll, I'll get you a ranking for the whole series since we're not going to see you again. And, um, sure. So what do so you give this out of five stars,
2: and how do you rank the series? I, I give it a three. Um, I, I, I don't – like, I, I'm an apologist for this movie. I recognize the flaws it has, I, I, I've, I've, and I, I recognize the flaws it has. I understand the flaws it had but i also feel that what it does right does enough to push it over the over the top for me and take it out of what could have been bad movie territory and elevates it to it's just too charming moment to moment for me and and heartbreaking when it needs to be and oppressive when it needs to be for me to to go the james route and give it a 2.5 <laughs> you know <laughs> never so go I, the james route <laughs> i agree with james i'm like nine. i agree with you and james i'm like 99 percent of thing. i do but too like, but he's the worst <laughs> we we exaggerate our differences for fun but uh <laughs> but uh as far as where i place this in the series um i hadn't put crimes of grendelwald on here and to be fair i've seen crimes of grendelwald twice so that's kind of tentative here um I would say Deathly Hallows Part 1, which is controversial, I understand. Prisoner of Azkaban for number two. Half-Blood Prince for number three. Chamber of Secrets for number four. I like all of those. Yeah. Fantastic Beasts for number five. Order of the Phoenix for number six. Deathly Hallows Part 2 for number seven. Sorcerer's Stone for number eight. Crimes of Grinowald for number nine. And Goblet of Fire for number ten. It's
0: very close to mine. Um, so I, I give it three and a half stars. I'm very close to giving it four because of how much I love the characters and the themes, Sure. but I can't get there. Just it's, it's got some issues. It's just it's a it's a weird, wonky, goofy, dorky movie, uh, and I love it, you know, Warts and all. Um, so three and a half stars out of five. My rankings are: number one, The Prisoner of Azkaban; two, The Half Blood Prince; three, Deathly Hallows Part One; four, Chamber of Secrets; five, Order of the Phoenix; six, Fantastic Beasts; seven uh, death, Alice part two, eight, the Sorcerer's stone and nine, the goblet of fire. Um, and actually my, my list has changed quite a bit over this rewatch, which doesn't usually happen. Like half blood Prince jumped up to over two movies. Uh, Order of the Phoenix jumped up one, fantastic Beast jumped up one, like there's actually some reshuffling going on, which uh doesn't usually happen for me, but then pretty much all of it's happening because I like the movies more than I liked them last time, so that's always fun
2: I should say too, with crimes going to I've seen it twice, but that even that's unfair because I saw it in theaters, and then I saw the extended edition, which is actually a different movie, so I mean it's not substantially a different movie, but I digress <laughs> so but uh. My saying that is like, yeah, I have it below Sorcerer's Stone here, but that could change. I'm not as familiar with it as I am the rest of the stuff. The rest of the stuff I am very familiar with. Yeah, I, I saw it three or four times in theaters. I, I fell in love with that movie like some crazy. Um, the, the, the highs are freaking immensely high. Yeah. But the lows, whew, there are some lows. <laughs>
0: So for the film's box office, domestically it earned 234 million, and then 580 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 814 million on its 180 million dollar budget. This makes it uh, the lowest grossing uh, film in the Wizarding World series domestically, only over the second Fantastic Beast film. Um, however, it did beat out Prisoner of Azkaban in its worldwide gross. So it's a very big hit, but it wasn't getting quite up to the numbers that the Harry Potter series had been getting. You know, during its heyday, it stands at number eight of 2016 worldwide and number 12 domestically, which I think there you really see the step down um, from where the series had been ranking as far as the the um, the yearly grosses for the last few Harry Potter films. Um, Critically, it received a muted but positive critical reception It holds a 74 percent on Rotten Tomatoes and a 66 on Metacritic. Uh, which places it on the lower end of critical reception for the series. However, in audience polls, it uh, generally finds itself uh, in the bottom half, but towards the middle. Um, so a bit higher for uh, fan rankings, but it definitely it does have the lowest, uh, the lowest rating on Letterbox of any Harry Potter film aside from its sequel. It's yeah, so a positive reception at the time, but nothing effusive. Um, it, but I, I From what I I can see, it seems that fans were overall pretty positive and a a bit more so than critics and a general audience. It was nominated for two Oscars and it won uh, for Best Costume Design uh, for Colleen Atwood, making it the first film in the series to to win an Oscar, uh, which is ridiculous. So talking about the legacy of this film, I remember why I don't think there's a lot you can say at the it started pretty positive, muted, but positive. I think think everybody was just happy to be back in the wizarding world. Yeah, but even then, there was a bit of cynicism towards it. Right. Then, just cultural, political stuff with J.K. Rowling, with Johnny Depp, um, general franchise fatigue in culture, Crimes of Grindelwald being Crimes of Grindelwald, (laughs) and then right now it feels very lumped in with the crimes of Grindelwald hate. Like I don't, it doesn't feel like people make much of a distinction between the two films, like all those stupid fantastic beast films, everything wrong with Hollywood. Like they're very dismissive towards these movies. And And
2: even then, like, I feel like that's so unfair because this is not like, and you and I are both big fans of the force awakens. So I'm not saying, I'm just saying as a point of comparison, like, force awakens is very derivative of a new hope and that doesn't mean it's bad right the, the, the you... intention was you hated the prequels you like the originals come on back kid like that's right, right. but you, you, you get where like you, even if you don't agree with it you get where the the idea that oh this is just cashing in on nostalgia is a semi-founded idea but with fantastic beast it's the same world but that's where the similarities die. Like, this is extremely different, ambitious to do a a story in the world that is so markedly different from what came before it. Yeah, the, the criticism of, like, oh, the magic is gone. It doesn't feel like that. that... This
0: is a question that I don't think will ever be answered because humans are ridiculous and weird and make no sense. Like, what do people want out of movies like this? Like, there's all this talk we want originality and stories to do daring things and be different. And I'm tired of these cookie cutter plots. But the moment you have a film that is structured differently, that is doing something significantly different story wise, and is or and particularly if it's if it's in within if it's within a um a popular franchise, the you know, the, the claws come out. People get really angry and protective and like you know this isn't my harry potter this is you know it's not magical but like it, it it's just strange like I, I don't i don't think people have
2: any any i don't even know if they even think about what they really want like, it, it's no less magical than it like it's no less magical to me than than broomstick air soccer like you know like the harry potter has always been a blend of the mundane with the magical Mm. you know i, was, and, I think, I think they're, they mean tonal like it's not like sorcerer's stone where
0: it just gives me warm fuzzies but also if you remember harry potter that's a really dark series like fully half you, of it. By the time you get to deathly hallows it's by the time strange. you get to order the phoenix it's,
2: yeah yeah it's true
0: like yeah it it's fully dark and grim and the world is about to end and it's and also it's interesting like it i said i said before i don't know what people want but i think what people really want is they want to feel that those warm... when they come back to a series after a while, they want to feel the exact same warm fuzzies they did as a child when they read this thing. But two things one, you're not a child <laughs> anymore, but also, like, you any attempts to recreate that almost never work because this the, the series has become too complicated, like, and, it's and too layered and mature and thoughtful. And then, um, and just this the series, the series grew up and this film is taking that into account like this is the film made for the generation that is now 30-year-old adults who read Harry Potter like that's yeah. this that's what the series is for and but right. but people were saying like no I want sorcerer's stone again which i get it that's an adorable movie but also the series is I don't has... want sorcerer's stone again. I don't, I don't either.
2: And and for two even if you were to do so successfully, you open yourself up to that Force Awakens kind of oh, criticism. You know, it's like, you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't. You know, like, I, and and I think Crimes of Grendelwald gets it, uh, gets way worse end of it because it is incredibly different than anything that came before it, you know? Like any film that's ever existed in the history right. of cinema can't yeah. look at the niffler and the rumpet and tell me that doesn't belong in the same universe as sorcerer's stone you know like yeah
0: but it's like when the, opening this film I was like with the, when he Yates opened it with all the um all the newspaper clubings like oh order of the phoenix that's the mindset we're in now that kind yeah. of oppressive terrified wizarding world great I know what it, and
2: it, it it felt
0: it felt normal
2: yeah yeah I, I think so too I I didn't feel alienated by at quite the country. Part of it, too, is that we are in a different country, you know, so we are in a different in a different culture. Our only link back to it is an awkward link back to it, you know, a, an outcast from that very society we've grown very familiar with, you know, so I I get where it can feel a bit alienating, you know, but in a way, like, I was just excited, like, this is a weird parallel. But the the first Pokemon region to not be based out of Japan was also based on New York. And it was like, I remember feeling, oh, oh, cool, it's coming to America, like the concepts of that world are coming to America. I want to see how that goes. As an American, that's very interesting to me. So when I heard that fantastic beast was going to take place in 1920s new york i was like super cool i definitely want to see this you know and i,
0: I love the concept of where each one's in a different locale you know, they did uh, yeah new york and now pa- it was paris
2: now they're going to brazil like that's really fun uh, it sounds really fun yeah i and what's funny is you say brazil and i'm thinking uh they mentioned i think in goblet of fire a wizarding school in brazil like they're the south american Center of magical education. So I wonder if we'll see that. All right. Um, so, so as far as like, how is this? How
0: will this film be looked at in future? I I don't think we can have any idea, and I don't think it's dependent whatsoever on the quality of this film. I think how this film is going to be viewed in future is entirely dependent on, well, the reception of, you know, Secrets of Dumbledore and the next two films that they happen. Like if people hate. Secrets of Dumbledore as much as they did Crimes of Grindelwald, then this movie's screwed. Like it's gonna be a laughing stock. Yeah. Like it, 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 it'll it'll it's I think it's good enough, and I think people like enough people in the fandom like the characters of Tina and and Jacob and all them that it'll have its own cult following. But as far as like larger film culture and people, um, outside of the it's Harry Potter it's already sort of forgotten. You know? Yeah. It's 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 it is it really depends on whether or not they can be one back and. People don't want to be one back right now, <laughs> so we shall see. All right, so thanks for coming on, Ryan. This, as always, this was a lot of fun, and thankfully, without James,
2: just <laughs> to sour the ending.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um,
2: so, where can people fi- uh, find you online? Uh, yeah, uh, I host a YouTube show called the Raw Quiz Show. It is a uh, trivia game uh, for the twenty first century. Uh, we uh, we have a very very competitive format where players don't just gain score for themselves but they get the opportunity to harm each other's score so it can be bitter and divisive yes exactly exactly you know like if you're going to make people compete over trivia why just make them compete for prizes when you can make them compete for hammers that they're then going to hit each other with that's my philosophy anyway and that's what we do at the raw quiz show So we're between seasons right now because it is a seasonal show with, uh, continual, uh, uh, the, the combatants, I call them rather than contestants stay from episode to episode. But, uh, by the time this, this has been released, we'll probably have uh, already had it out, but, uh, we're doing, uh, what I call the moon cup where we have eight players, uh, Full elimination style, forty questions. Last one standing wins, and uh, that person will receive a fifty dollars Amazon gift card. So, there's stakes this time. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, well, you can uh, find me
0: on Letterboxd. I'm there as Gabriel Green, blogging in all my movies and reviewing some of them. Uh, you can also follow me on. Uh, well, I generally just use the t- the Twitter account of uh the of the podcast, A Franchised Pod. That's pretty much my personal Twitter account right now. So, if you want to know what I'm thinking right now, uh, you can follow me there. And also, I have a YouTube channel called Greenery One, where I put out these uh music m- movie based music videos and trailer mashups and whatnot. Um, as far as the podcast, um, uh, you can find you can follow us on Facebook at Franchise Unique Podcast. As I said on Twitter and Instagram, is at Franchise Pod. And of course, all the other episodes will be on FranchiseFutiquePodcast.com. dot uh, James
2: James's places you can find them. I don't care. Uh, next week <laughs> just watch a previous episode if you're watching Fantastic Beasts and haven't watched the other eight you're, you're missing out <laughs> just go back and watch the other or
0: listen to the other eight you know. All right, so next episode we'll be talking about what is currently the final film in the Wizarding World Fantastic Beasts The Crimes of Grindelwald a terrible title very unfortunate <laughs> um, and the sequel title is not any better yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm one of the very, very few defenders of the film, as you've noticed. Um, so I'm really excited to, to talk about that. I'm, I'm gonna be ready to fight if, if James doesn't like it. Uh,
2: that's gonna be an interesting recording. <laughs> I I don't have high hopes for that. Uh, and, and yeah, I, it may be that we're totally wrong. But I, I have a feeling if he didn't like this, watch a- him come a- back and give it like four and a half stars. <laughs> that is also a possibility too. Very um, slim, but uh, yeah, I kind of doubt it because I, I think the problems there are way more obvious.
0: <laughs> yeah. And since we recorded this behind-the-scenes stuff at a later date, James is now back. Uh, so did you did you have any uh, thoughts as far as the legacy and the way this film is received and how how its reception is going to look for the future? We already ta- I already talked about this with Ryan, uh, but what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so it's, I, you know, like, between you and Ryan and then uh, Chad, who we've had on, who's like a fan, like, I know a lot of people who do really like this. Uh, and like I said before, I do plan on rewatching it and I'd love to, to kind of join the people who love and defend it. Um, but the legacy itself, I, I am genuinely curious what this is going to look like. Um, because there's still, there's still a lot of love for Harry Potter as a series. Like we've got the, the whole HBO, like 20 year anniversary thing going on for, uh, the Sorcerer's Stone, but really, it's the celebration of the entire the entire film series with a cast and everything. And it, you see a lot of online excitement about it. So there's still like, for despite the fact that you know it's been several years since we've had uh, Deathly Hallows Part Two, Harry Potter is still a part of the conversation. It's still something that's talked about. Um, and you know we've had we have two films more recent than it that just really don't get talked about a whole lot. And when they do. Um, outside of the people here and there who really like it, there's, there isn't a lot of conversation, um, and so it's I, I do wonder what is this gonna kind of, it won't join the the prequel conversation, in the way that like you know the prequel the Star Wars prequels are appreciated. But well, my goodness, they have such a massive legacy. They're talked about all the time. Like it's such a huge part of the culture, mm. and so I wonder if of like the. Of the various prequels that we could try to look at them or like, you know, put them right by if The Hobbit isn't going to be maybe a closer one. Because despite loving The Hobbit trilogy myself, you know, that trilogy is mostly forgotten. People don't talk about The Hobbit much at all.
0: I think a more apt example might be the X-Men reboot. Although those first two films were very well received.
1: Especially but
0: basically once apocalypse came out everyone decided you know what i hate these you know i love the first two but for some reason now i hate this you know i hate these characters i hate this reboot it was weird like how fast people turned on that series. yeah but
1: I, I feel like i do feel like though there is something even weirdly distinct about that where it's like a man it started with such great promise you know people love first class people really love days of future past like to the point to where like those are listed pretty like pretty high up in lists whenever they rank the series.
0: Yeah, but but still, no one talk. But they really don't get talked about that much. I feel like. Um, as far as I think part, you know, the wider part of that world. is just
1: maybe because X Men as a series doesn't get talked about a whole lot. Like I feel like as a series, it's kind of
0: other than uh, Wolverine, Hugh Jackman, he gets
1: yeah, but he
0: gets all the attention.
1: Yeah, and so I don't know. It, to, to me, it does it. Like whenever I think about the Hobbit, I think you know my thoughts on it aside, it just kind of came and went. And whenever it is like intentionally brought up in the, the conversation, and people are like, "It's there to be commented on." People are like, "Oh yeah, man, what what bad movies?" But it's not like nobody's always thinking about them. They're not always just there. And when they are there, it's kind of like, "Oh yeah, I wish they'd stop there." And I wonder, you know, especially knowing that the reception of Crimes of Grindelwald really drops from the you know tepid positivity of the original. Um, and like this big time gap between uh, the this big production time gap between Grindelwald and Secrets of Dumbledore is Dumbledore gonna get the the death cure kind of it's been too long mm-hmm. nobody nobody like you, you lost the momentum there so I don't know I think the series like as prequels the legacy of this first one may be tied up to some extent in just however all of these this whole series shakes out and is kind of in danger of just like going back and forth between like being forgotten versus just like a mild awareness that's mostly exist in, in a kind of sense of disappointment. So I just, I think the legacy of this one, you know, we're it's, it's kind of tied to whatever happens secrets of Dumbledore, I think has a, has a lot riding on it.
0: Yeah. That's pretty much exactly what I said to Ryan. Like if the next one is hated, then that hatred is going to spill back over on this first film. But if like the next two are really well liked, this film's like, like this particular film's legacy is going to be uh, raised as well. It's it's a weird thing. I
1: I definitely agree with that idea that uh, the, the cron or the so Dumbledore's reception is going to reach back and maybe reframe or, or you know, it, it will will affect Fantastic Beasts because it's bad. If it's bad, then the conversation is going to be like, well, Fantastic Beasts as a series is never really that great. But if it's if it's really good, it would not surprise me if we see a lot of, well, you know, I actually kind of like Fantastic Beasts. Uh, Crimes of Grindelwald wasn't that great, but I thought it started out good, so I'm glad it was kind of like back on track. Like I think people are going to read like it's to in some way going to determine whether people are like. Well, it wasn't really that great to start with, or I kind of liked it, and I'm kind of I'm glad it's good again. Like I think I think both of those are real possibilities.
0: And going back to your Hobbit comparison, that first film was actually pretty well liked. It wasn't until like the next two came out that people really started to kind of oh just hating on the Hobbit trilogy kind of as a blanket statement.
1: Yeah, I definitely I remember that reception after an unexpected journey where everybody's like the consensus was. Well, it's not as good as Lord of the Rings, but that's a pretty unfair, you know, standard. And isn't it so much fun to be back in Middle Earth? Like everybody was like, you know, it was as good as it needed to be and we're in Middle Earth again. Like there was kind mm-hmm. of a okay, I can I can deal with this. Like I can and and then that just like petered out with the sequels. And then it's like people pretended as if nobody was ever excited after they finished that first one.
0: Yep. Now that you're back, you want to tell us where people can find you online.
1: Yeah, you can find me uh, on Letterbox at J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, And you can also find both of us over on the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. Uh, we are both admins over there, along with other friends, such as Josh Musker, who's been on. Um, so if you love Star Wars and you're excited about all the things that we know are going to be coming pretty soon, definitely join us over there. So until next week, we will see you in the sequel.
0: Will we die? Just a little.